Runners, are you in amazing shape? Have you always wanted to shut me up, put me in my place, beat me in a race? One month from today, you can do that. Enter the Go for the Red virtual race on August 7th, 2021. It supports the Red Cross. It's an amazing organization. It's an amazing race. I did it last year. Sign up now. Go go to gofortheredorg Sign up. Join Team Johnson slash Let's Run. We're like number five right now in terms of money raised. It's a great cause. You need a race. If you're not in good shape, you need a race too because this will make you realize you're not in good shape and then shame you into getting in better shape. So if you want to find out what type of shape I'm in, you enter this race and you will see my 5K time in one month from today. Go for the red. Org. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. This is Jonathan Galt to be joined shortly by my bosses, Let's Run co-founders Robert and Weldon Johnson. Yet another week of nothing to talk about, right? We have an Olympics three weeks from now. Sha'Carri Richardson isn't going. Kenny Sabakele isn't going. Brianna McNeil isn't going. Christine Mboma isn't going. Selwa Eid Nasser isn't going. I think there might be someone on this podcast too. Well, we hope he's going, but Robert, are you going to the Olympics? It's yet to be determined. It's been a traumatic week for track and field fans. It seems like how many gold medal favorites aren't going, and then arguably the best track and field journalists in the world may not be going as well, folks. That is correct. John, I didn't tell you either. United Airlines sent an email last night. Your flight to Tokyo has been canceled. Don't worry, I fixed it. I fixed it this morning. You'll be going. So, uh, actually, there's a big scare there for all the track and field fans. But Jonathan, you will be in the Olympics. Oh well, no! You, I mean, t- Robert is right. Tim Layden's not going, so the best track and field journalist isn't going. But uh, yeah, fortunately, I should be there as long as I can jump through all the hoops. We're hoping Robert will be there, but there's a little bit of a, a worry, right, Robert? There's a concern. Yes. For some reason, my passport appears to be missing. We've determined that it's hard to get in hold with anyone with a passport. Apparently, you. I, I, I need to make an urgent plea. Senator Van Hollen, I think that's my senator's name. Are you listening? Someone from his office. I didn't want to bother the senior senator from Maryland. This is the junior senator. If you're listening, please email the show, Robert at Let's Run.com. Robert at Let's Run.com. This thing's going to really suck. You can go to congressman too, Robert. Go to your congressman. I don't like these gerrymandered. I, I I don't support that, these gerrymandered districts. Well, Robert, I hope you can get that sorted out. Uh, but we do have a lot to talk about on the show. As we mentioned, all those people aren't going. We had, since our last podcast, we've had two Diamond Leagues, including a world record. We've had a meet that may have been better than both of them, the Isfan Guliai. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that memorial in Hungary. And well, then we've also got a great interview at the end of the show coming up with a, a double Olympic champion. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yes, the great Gale Devers. I would try to stump you, John, but you know everything about track and field. 
Actually, John, tell me what you know about Gail Devers. Just something. All right, well, I did pull open her Wikipedia page because I knew she was an Olympic 100-meter champion, and I was trying to figure out uh, what else. So she actually won the 100 twice. But the main things I know about Gail Devers is big nails, and she might have won the... She ran the 100, the flat 100, and the 100 hurdles. And even though she was a double Olympic champion in the 100, I feel like when I was little most people knew her for falling. I think it was the Atlanta Olympics, right? In the hurdles towards the end of the race. That was kind of her defining moment. She never won the Olympic 100 hurdles for whatever reason. She's a two-time flat 100-meter champion. She's sort of regarded as better at the hurdles. And she she smashed the hurdle and went down. But her coming back to win double gold was sort of the story. And July is Graves' disease month. John, do you know anything about Graves' disease or Gail Devers and Graves' disease? I don't know much about it, I have to say. It's what Gail suffered from. And it's what I remember sort of as, I think I was in high school when Gail first won the Olympics, but it was an illness, Graves' disease. Could have killed her. She almost had her feet amputated. They would talk about how she, she sat in her house, had to keep the shades down. The light bothered her. She dropped down to like 85, 90 pounds. I mean, it was crazy. Comes back to that to be this Olympic champion. So she talks about that. And also, she's a huge track and field fan. She starts talking about the distance races in Eugene, the 800, 1500, 5K. Yes, that's true. And ladies and gentlemen, you guys won't believe this. Gail Deaver started off as an 800-meter runner. Yep, she did it the opposite way of everyone else in the world. And, hey, she's run a half marathon once. So she talks about distance running at the end of our talk as well. It was recorded before... Brianna McNeil was permanently banned, but the 100-meter hurdles has been kind of crazy the last few years. So we'll have the interview with Gail, and then we'll have the interview with James Francovia, the Chief Development Officer for the American Red Cross. If you're signing up for the GoForTheRed.org virtual race, where you can race yours truly in one month. I was in good shape last year. I don't know if I'm in good shape this year. It's going to be kind of embarrassing, but support the Red Cross. Amazing charity. Do you guys realize the first Nobel Peace Prize went to the inventor of the Red Cross? I did. I think I did know that, actually. It's come up on Jeopardy a few times. So, yeah, like we said, guys, a bunch of meets happen. We have Monaco, which is basically going to be an Olympic preview coming up on Friday. Yeah, I was about to say, isn't this the Monaco Diamond League preview show? This is a huge week of track and field. Yeah, Monaco, always one of the premier events of the year. This year, no different. We've got... I mean, most of these races are just Olympic previews. They don't screw around at Monaco. They bring out the big guns. Women's 200, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, Gabby Thomas, and Shawnee Miller-Webo. That's ridiculous. The 800, it's got Robert's boy, Nigel Amos. We've got Clayton Murphy. We've got Robert's other boy, Patrick Dobak from Poland. Emmanuel Correa. I mean, I feel like Robert loves all the 800 runners who aren't Americans. Women's 1500, Kipigon versus Hassan. Men's 100, Baker, Bromel, DeGrasse, Curley, and Simbine, who just ran 9.84 on Tuesday. Emma Coburn chasing sub-9 in the steeple. I mean, it's going to be a phenomenal meet. We'll get to that in a little bit. But, I mean, Shikari Richardson, that's the story that the entire world has been talking about. And Weldon and I discussed it for our Let's Run.com Supporters Club members on Friday's podcast. But we have yet to have the atomic hot takes of Robert Johnson on the podcast. So I'm going to throw it open to Rojo. We, we've had the news. USATF has officially announced this team. She is not on it. She will not be competing in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Robert, feel free to unload. 
This is a joke. Uh, it was a shame that I missed Friday's podcast because I was going on vacation. Before I leave, I start a petition and, you know, I'm, I'm camping. So I wasn't on my computer that often. I, I check in on it. Patrick Mahomes has joined the cause. AOC has joined the, her cause. Um, the people at change.org, whoever I had the petition, they've contacted me and wanted to merge my petition with somebody else. There's like 500,000 people on this. I think that's moveon.org has 500,000. Then our petition has 100,000 or 50,000. I don't know. Hundreds of thousands of people wanted to run. And it's a disgrace she's not running. Has Max Siegel been fired yet? I don't understand this. Like, what's going on? Where's the leadership? What does this guy do for a million dollars a year? Drives me nuts. Robert, come on. You think she should be able to, the rules say she can't run the hundred. So he should be fired for not following the rules. We always criticize UATF for not following the rules. I think the question is whether she could have run the four by one. It's clear from the rules, Robert, there was no way she could run the 100 meters. No, my petition was to try to get everybody else behind her to turn down their spot. And then she would have run the hundred. If Max Siegel had taken some initiative on this, he could have gotten other people to sort of feel the peer pressure and all turn down their spot. I mean, I saw something from Pay Sports Management, and he's like, Jenna Prandini's being harassed. I wouldn't want that, them to be harassed, but come on, you all got beat. Just turn down your spot. Okay, m- m- maybe she can't run. So she technically could run the individual one hundred. What I don't understand is the relay. I, I this is to me a monumental disaster like are these people and this is why i do i really think he should be fired for this no but his job is to market the sport of track and field in this country there would be not a greater opportunity to market the sport of track and field than to have this woman in the four by one do you understand this would be a global phenomenon everyone would have to watch this race everybody would want to see how she does it would be great marketing and i'm just stunned that they wouldn't put her the fastest woman in america on the four by one. She's got nothing better to do than practice the relays for the next three weeks. So it would be perfect. You'd have your anchor, your ace. She could run in the prelims and the final. Like, why isn't she on this team? All right, Robert, a couple things here. So I think I'm going to try to bring in some facts here. New York times, their explanation, they had a story, Matthew Futterman. This was his explanation for what USATF told him. She wasn't named to the relay. She said, he said he wrote the coaches had already selected the members of the relay squad and informed those runners of their placements before Richardson's positive test became public. After Richardson's DQ, the coaches chose the next six finishers from the individual hundred and decided it would be unfair to take a slot away from one of those runners and give it to Richardson simply because that would be the only way to get her on the team. Also, the organization selection criteria do not include a provision for that sort of substitution. So the Basically, you know, they didn't feel they didn't want to yank a spot away from someone they had given a, a spot in the relay to pull to. But I think this is the more relevant thing because Nick Sicardi, I was just in a Twitter discussion with Nick Sicardi and Jesse Squire about this. And I was kind of confused. Jesse Squire said you the published selection policy doesn't let her pick them pick her for the team. And I was like, well, if you go to the relay selection criteria, it actually does. It says that the coach and the relay coach have two discretional spots. But then Nick Zaccardi said there is a part at the top of the USATF selection procedures that says eligibility criteria for the US team. And in order to do that, it says you have to be eligible to represent the USA at all levels of international competition at the time of the selection, which would be right now. And right now, Shikari Richardson Richardson is serving a one-month ban for marijuana and is not eligible if that's the reason, USATF, I feel like, should have done a better job explaining 
Okay, our rules say you have to be eligible when we pick the team. We're picking the team right now, and she's not eligible, even though she will be in Tokyo. You can get into a whole discussion about whether that should be right or not, but I believe that is the explanation that I've seen that makes the most sense. So they're trying to argue in some technicalities she can't run? I don't understand this. What do you mean? They picked the team at the trials. She was on it. She was eligible to be on the team when she picked it. The trial's finished. She's eligible. They put her on the team. No, 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 no. Come on, Robert. She failed a drug test. Like, that's all pending. They don't actually name... The, they only named the team yesterday. They don't name the team at the trials because they got to wait for the drug test to come back and all that other stuff. No, she, they, they picked the... They've already said they picked the initial team. She was on it. Then they got the drug test. That's, so they, they asked the next person. But then they find out she's actually going to be eligible. So you put her back on it. It's pretty obvious. She was on the team. She, she failed a drug test. Then they find out it's only a one-month suspension, so they put her back on the test. Don't go to some technicality that they couldn't tell the ninth-placed woman that's, oh, my God. What, what is it? Isn't John, let's say they ignored this rule and just put her back on it. Do you think the ninth-placed woman's going to file a goddamn lawsuit to get her knocked off the team? No. This is where <laughs> common sense comes on. Max Siegel or somebody realizes this woman needs to be on the damn, damn relay team. What's shocking to me, though, is how – quickly shakari herself rolled over i've been getting a lot of conspiracy conspiracy text on this people are like i cannot believe shakari just accepted this and says you know i shouldn't have done this but i was stressed out i mean i i can't believe she's not outraged i am outraged i don't get this like yes you're not supposed to smoke weed but it's a dumb rule she smoked it to me people like rules are rules including joe biden come on joe be more nuanced than that. Be more sophisticated than that. Rules are rules. The analogy I like to use is if I'm speed, if my wife's pregnant and goes into labor and is about to have a baby and I'm speeding to the hospital and the cop pulls me over for speeding, he walks up to the car. I explain to him, hey, my wife's about to give birth. Yes, I broke a rule, but they're not going to give me a damn ticket. The same thing here. Yes, she smoked dope, but guess what? Her mother had just died. Are you kidding me? Just... Come on, uh, Robert. What this sounds like to me is a 47-year-old man is being less mature about this situation than a 20-year-old, 21-year-old woman. I think Shakari's handled it very well. She's accepted it. She hasn't asked anyone to be put on the relay team. Do we even know if she wants to run the relay? Has anyone asked her that? I mean, I just think you're kind of obsessing over this. She will have another shot. It's an unfortunate situation, but we blast USATF when they don't follow their own rules. Now they're trying to follow their rules and you're blasting them again. A couple things. I mean, the the rule, I guess, let's just, it says, technically, quote, you must be eligible to represent the USA at all levels of international competition at the time of the selection. So I guess you could argue what time of selection means. One, could you could argue, she maybe that really means be a citizen. And like, some could say maybe that doesn't mean drug suspension. She's eligible She's just not allowed to compete. I mean, like, what does that mean? So some legal smiths could probably parse that a lot of different ways. I think two things. One, USATF should have, because in the USATF statement, they made it sound like she could not be selected without changing the rules, but they didn't, they, of course, didn't explain it very well. So it's a breakdown of communications. And John, I think you're on to something. I never got any indication that Shikari really, or maybe they just sort of accepted it, but the indication that she really wanted to do this. Ronaldo Nehemiah, her agent, said, we haven't spoken about it at all. It wasn't, it was actually not a topic we focused on. That was when he was asked after the ban, you know, how she was taking it, not being on the relay. But you never saw anything her saying like, oh, I really want to be on the relay, that sort of thing. So. Well, that's even more troubling to me then. She doesn't want to represent her country and run on the relay. Why? Do they, oh my they don't God. get paid? There's no bonus? 
I mean, Robert, can you have some empathy though? She's going through a lot of stuff. She's just had her dream snatched away. She might not want to go over there and just run the relay. She thinks of herself as she should be in the individual hundred. I don't know. I don't want to put thoughts in her head because that's what I criticize you for doing, but it's quite possible that she doesn't want to run the relay at all. And I think, look, if she's handling them maturely and ready to move on, I feel like at this point, what it's done. You know, you're not going to change. The, the team is named. She's not on it. We kind of just got to accept it. It's unfortunate. Move on. She'll be back for you, Gene, 2022. One other thing about the rules. The punishment is supposed to fit the crime. And people are like, oh, the rules are the rules. And I agree. But like when there's like a draconian sentence for some stupid crime, people try to change the rules. So maybe they need to be changed going forward. But the drug suspension real quickly goes from like four years to one month for weed. It's just supposed to be a total slap on the wrist. The only problem is, and we discussed this on the Friday 15, and if you want an extra podcast every week, become a Supporters Club member today. Hundreds of you guys have been signing up recently during the trials and stuff. It's been great. Let's run.com slash subscribe. But when your one-month suspension coincides with the trials and you're not allowed to be selected for the Olympic team, it's almost, I mean, death sentence isn't the right word, but then the punishment way exceeds the crime. It's supposed to be a total slap on the wrist. Hey, don't don't smoke weed. And instead, this became something more. So, I it's interesting because Robert was you know advocating essentially for people, not for the just for people to churn down their spot. Then they, then USATF would be the selection. Who do we pick? We put her on the team. That was still operating within the rules. I think lawyers could wordsmith this one and try to get her on the four by one team, but it's not happening. And I think it's unfortunate because it, it would be great for the Olympics for her to be there. Absolutely. All right, Robert, final thoughts on this. I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about Shakari Richardson. Well, I think in the long term, this may have actually helped her financially. I've said this woman's going to make a ton of money. Now she's a bigger name in the U.S. I mean, I, I do think that the Olympic gold bonus from Nike for the next three years would have really helped her. But if she can win Worlds next year, she's going to make a ton of money. She, I think she can get outside endorsements. So it'll be interesting to see what, what moves forward. Okay, other story. Kenise Bekele is also not going to the Olympics. And John had an interview with his agent, Josh Hermans, where he slammed the Ethiopians. He said, look, they said he was going to be on the team based on his 201-41. Now he's not on the team. This is a joke. And, you know, as a fan, I'm disappointed too because I wanted to see Bekele. I wanted to see him versus Kipchoge. The good news is Bekele is in the Netherlands training under Hermans. Hermans has really got him going. Look for him in a fall marathon. This should be exciting. But, John, there was one thing in that story that you had in Hermans, and I thought, oh, my God, this is the classic Jonathan Galt. Like, you do great work, but sometimes you guys have a huge story, and it's buried in a story, and you didn't realize it. There was something in your reporting that I saw that I heard on the Friday 15 that just shocked me, and you guys didn't even talk about it. You, The Ethiopians – you know, it came out that also, you know, who was on their Olympic team and no one's doubling like the world record holder in the 10,000 and the 5,000 is only in the 10,000, which is insane. They're, they're passing up medals. Like if you're the best in the world, the fastest woman in the world, in the five and the 10, you should run both. And you know, how do you, be, how do you become an Olympic legend? You become a Mo Farah. You, be, you win multiple golds. Like that's what you do. Like it's good for the sport. It's good for your country. Like why wouldn't you put your best person in more than one event? It doesn't make any sense. And that's my pet peeve about the Olympics is the doubles aren't that easy to do. But in this article, you mentioned that Herman says 
that they like to spread it around because the coaches get paid apparently but from the government if they have an Olympian. So this is all some like this is classic third world corruption. So some coach can make a few thousand dollars. They've ruined their own Olympic chances for the country by, by not doubling up people. So this was fascinating. I've never understood why they wouldn't double up the stars in Ethiopia. And now I've finally found out thanks to you, John, although you didn't make it a big deal of that story. Excellent reporting. So congratulations on that. Well, I don't totally, I don't, I think you're leaping to conclusions here. You're saying the reason that they don't like them doubling it's so that the coaches spread it around. I I think that's, I don't have a firm link between those two things and you, you seem to have drawn one. So I'm not totally sold on that. But what I did find interesting was Jos Hermans, he criticized them. He's like, you know, it's a political thing and that's why he was left off the team. The whole reason, I, look, I like Jos Hermans, but the whole reason they had a trials in the first place was to remove this, that they said every time they pick a team, People complain. They complain when Bekele was left off in 2016. Then he goes to Berlin and almost breaks the world record. So the Ethiopian Federation, now they they bungled this because they gave only a two-month heads up on this trials race, but they wanted to have the trials so that you wouldn't have people complain. So they could say, look, we had a trials. The trials picked the team. That's who we're naming. And now that they've done that, still the people who are left off are going to complain because they said, well, you have to change it. And I think that the solution here would have been announced in the fall. You're having a trials in May gives everyone time to get ready. Maybe it's a little close to the Olympics, but I don't think, I think it's able to recover. That would have been the most sensible solution, but that's not what happened here. I've always said the best way for Kenya and Ethiopia to pick their team would be to hold a trials race, hold it on the last possible day next to the Olympics and in the conditions most similar to the Olympics. So you don't want to have it at altitude if the Olympics are at altitude. But take the selection out of it and let the results speak for themselves. That's harder said than done for a marathon. I get it. But anyways, the team is what it is. Um, there's been, it's just been crazy, though. I mean, the, the other big stories about people not going is these Namibian 400-meter runners. What shocked me about this was I, re I read a story saying they were training in Switzerland and they had no idea they were intersex. Like, this is crazy to me that the moment, John, you and I saw these results – Months ago, what was it, April, the two women who we would never heard of ran 49 low. We immediately thought, are they intersex? Like, is someone at World Athletics not helping them out? Like, if I know this and you know this, we've never even laid eyes on them. The most obvious explanation for this was that something like this was go on, going on. They should have privately had their, 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 their testosterone levels tested before they ran even faster and now we're like in a national story where they have to have their personal stuff put out, you know, to the world. I was getting pushback for people for asking if they were intersex last week for some people. I was like, I think it's an obvious explanation. I'm sorry that we've waited this long to get to it. And then lo and behold, you know, I was proven to be correct. I'm not sure if I got any apologies from these people that were trying to come after me on Twitter already. Yeah, Robert, it's a, well, it's a tricky subject, right? Because it's, a private detail. These are people, Christine and Bowman, no one knew who she was five months ago. And now she's thrust into the public spotlight because she's running so fast. And now she's not eligible to compete in the 400. But yeah, it's something like if you follow the sport a little bit, you should be able to know that have an idea. Okay. If someone is just some 18 year olds emerging from a country like Namibia and running crazy fast times, and we've never heard of them before, it might be something to consider. 
Uh, and we're not saying like, oh, they, they definitely have to be intersex, but it's just something to keep in mind. And again, try to handle it maybe before it totally gets, you know, reaches the situation we've got it in now. And then there, there are still, there's look there about from what I've seen about 50% of the public, or at least the vocal amount on Twitter is saying, oh, she should still be able to compete. I hated these laws with Casta Semenya. I hate them now. I am in the camp that I think Sebco did the right thing when he pushed these DSD rules through. I mean, Casta Semenya was totally dominating. She was unbeatable, literally unbeatable in the 800 after 2016. I think he made, I applaud him for stepping in to protect women's sports. But what I found interesting is there's some people, like I saw one take on Twitter, oh, this rule was only put in place because of Casta Semenya. They were taught, like, they were still trying to play Casta Semenya as the biggest victim and that it was specifically targeting her. And if anything, I think this rule has now proved it's not just Semenya. There's a whole host of athletes in this category. We had Imani uh, Saini from Niger last year, and now we have two Namibian athletes, Francine Niansaba, Mar- Margaret Wambui. It's It was never meant to solely target Casta Semenya because we see it... She's not definitely not the only woman it applies to. I don't know if we did a good job of explaining what's going on here, but so what? Christine Mbomba is that how you say her name? She ran forty nine low. Or did she run a forty eight, John. She ran a forty nine low, forty nine twenty four back in April, and then most recently she ran forty eight fifty four to move to number seven all time, and that was in June. This is out of nowhere. She's going to be the Olympic favorite, and now she can't go to the Olympics. And so uh, also a little explanation. The, these women are intersex. It's called DSD. You know, they're uh, the exterior, essentially female, but they have internal testes usually and produce testosterone when they go through puberty. So it, it's a total sort of edge case. This is more common than we think. But it's kind of crazy, right? Because these women are, are, are banned from the Olympics. And I have no reason to believe they had no idea that they were intersex until now. Yet the New Zealand weightlifter, is it Laurel Hubbard? I mean, this is a biological man being allowed to compete in the Olympics as a woman. There's nothing around it. 43 years old. That's just like denying science, in in my opinion. I I think that the transgender thing is a completely different thing. Your gender may not identify with your sex, but it's clear what the sex is of, of... Laurel Hubbard and well, the difference is Laurel Hubbard has to take uh, medication to reduce her testosterone. These athletes could also compete in the Olympics if they could still qualify by if they would take this. But that's also ignoring body structure advantages that men have, biological men. So and pr- I agree with you. It's it's absurd. And, and the biggest travesty of all is if you're naturally doing it, your your testosterone level has to be below five in a nanomilliliters. This Laurel Hubbard person only has to be below 10. So it doesn't make any sense. A biological man can have more testosterone than someone who's actually intersex. I mean, you know, if I was born without a penis, I would assume I'm a woman too. And then it finds out their internal organs are more male than female. So that's why I call them intersex. They can identify however they want. I think we spent enough time on this. I do want to talk about the action, but I got to talk about this Brianna McNeil case. Okay. Olympic champion. Robert, I just want to bring again. I just want to clarify some facts here because there's an article in the Namibian, a Namibian website that cl- they have the head of the Namibian National Olympic Committee who is claiming that these women are 
have XX chromosomes. They are females and conform to all female biological requirements. He's saying this. I just want to say, like, if you look at the World Athletics DSD regulations, they essentially say this is impossible, that if you have one of these conditions that classifies you as DSD, you are going to have XY chromosomes. They basically say, like, it's impossible to have this high-level testosterone without it. So I just want to put on the record, he's saying that XX... I don't know if he's seen their tests or World Athletics has, but he's sort of go he's going against what World Athletics has ruled in this decision. So I don't know if that's a further development that's worth tracking, but I just wanted to get that on the record. Okay, good. I bet my life he's wrong, but we'll see. Maybe he knows more about science than, than World Athletics and the, the experts. Robert is just coming in way too hot today and recently in general, like, my God, who bet his life. So now he's going to kill himself on the podcast that this is wrong. He said he'd pay... I think it was a million dollars or something or a hundred thousand dollars if Cole Hawker wasn't named to the Olympic team. He was right on that one. But Robert, just back off a bit. I actually want to talk about track, but before we do, can we talk about one more, about one more person that's not going to the Olympics? Brandon McNeil. I've been wondering what's going on with this case. This is a tampering case. Like, what can that mean? How can she be tampering? And now the stories come out in the New York Times. So I wonder who they had that, that had connections to the New York Times. Kind of an interesting case. I mean, McNeil, the Olympic champion in the 100 hurdles, had already missed a year because she missed three drug tests. And then in this case, she, I think, had missed one drug test, right, John, already? This was going to be her second missed test. She misses a test. The Athletics Integrity Unit says, hey, where were you? We tried to test you. Now, technically, under the rules, you don't have to answer them, which to me is bullshit. You should have to answer them. If you're supposed to be in a certain spot, you should have to tell them where you are. But according to the rule, she doesn't have to provide an explanation. But the explanation that she gave, she said, I had a, a medical procedure. I wasn't. There. I was recovering from it, and I was in pain. I didn't hear you knock. And then they said, okay, can you provide some proof of this? And she gave them – she'd had an abortion, um, and she provided paperwork, but she changed the date of the paperwork. Is that the story, John? Yes, pretty much. And she thought the date was January 11th, which was the day before her missed test. And it was actually January 10th. That was the paperwork that, you know, the, the clinic had given her. And rather, she was worried if she submitted this paperwork, which she thought was false to the AIU, they would ding her and then say, hey, you're trying to lie. You know, this is wrong. We're going to ban you. So in changing that paperwork, she actually did what she was worried about doing because it turns out the dates were correct. And she did this again when the AIU asked for more information. She didn't want to tell them that she had an abortion. This was a private thing, but eventually she kind of felt like she had to. She changed the dates again. Turns out the dates actually were correct. This abortion did happen. I don't think anyone's just, I don't, we haven't seen the full CAS decision. I don't think they're disputing that. But yeah, now I think this is what Weldon said again with Shikari. I think this is a case of the punishment fitting the crime. And she has been banned five years. So her career, she's 29 years old. Her career is basically dead at this point. And I do I think, she, like, I don't know. Did she make a mistake? I do think she made a mistake here. But should she be banned five years for it? I think that's harsh, even given she already served a one-year ban a few years ago. I, I, I just don't get... <laughs> <laughs> your reaction here. You're not outraged by Shakira, but you seem to be on her side in this one. I, I don't, this is a weird case, but 
I don't have a lot of sympathy for her. I feel she's traumatized for the abortion. I'm sorry about that. But like she'd already missed a year for missing three drug tests. So that's suspicious as hell to begin with. You know, I mean, think about it from the drug testing unit. They're like, this woman's missed three tests. She's missing another one. We want to know why. And then she submits fake data to them. Why did she change? I still don't understand this. I want to see the full report when it comes out. I don't understand why she changed the date. If she told them, hey, the day before I had a medical procedure, and then it actually was two days before, and she changed the dates to be a day before, it sounds like she's trying to create an excuse. If I, if it was me, I would have said, oh my gosh, I got the date wrong. I actually had an abortion. It's, it was actually two days before, but I was so traumatized and so much pain. Here it is. She told them that. No, she didn't. She changed. She changed the paperwork. She tried to change the dates. Why is she changing the dates? Why not just say, "Oh, you know what? I was discombobulated. I was in a lot of pain. It was actually two days before." Here's the paperwork. Instead of changing the dates, that seems very weird. It takes a lot of effort to get into Photoshop and change a date. Obviously, she didn't do a very good job of it because they were able to tell that she changed the date. Yeah, well, I think she did eventually tell them that. But yeah, when you're right initially, well, she thought the dates were wrong. And look. I can get, I get why you're thinking what, that what, way wrong. What, what do you mean she thought the dates were wrong? She thought that the clinic gave her the wrong date? Yes, that is what she thought. And that does sound hard to believe, I know. She would say, no, I specifically thought I had the abortion the day before the missed test, as opposed to two days before. That is something, that, that's a bad decision on her part. She should have told the, reached out to the clinic and said, are you sure this is the date? I'm submitting this as an explanation to the AIU. Can you please confirm that? The fact that she didn't do that, I... Yeah. I don't buy that excuse. You thought the clinic got the date wrong? I don't buy that. Nope. Next. It, this is just, I don't know. First of all, John, the full ruling is out. I've read it, or at least, you know, skimmed through it. The full decision? I thought it was just two pages. Well, then. No, the full decision's out. Oh. So, I think I, for most of these things, I think we need to come back to something called Hanlon's Razor. Never attribute to malice what is adequately by, explained by stupidity. I think I kind of want to give her the benefit of the doubt. She just like panicked. I mean, they, in the full decision, they don't dispute she had the abortion. Abortion. They don't dispute she was traumatized by it. She had an expert sort of say like, there's a lot of shame with abortion. People cope with it differently. Um, she altered the dates and like, I think three times, maybe two, and then finally fessed up. And I just think they're used to, I, I I don't know. I don't think she's doping the day after an abortion. She'd already missed th- a year for for missing three tests, and she'd already missed one other test this time, which I don't think was reported accurately the first time, or people kind of thought she hadn't missed a test. So this would have been her second missed test. So, and the AIU sort of presented, look, she didn't seem too traumatized in social media and that sort of stuff. So maybe she was trying to cover up. She's like, oh, if it's not a day before, they won't believe. They, they won't let me off. I'll, I'll use this as a way to have the second missed test go away. So maybe that was her thinking, the malice there. But I don't think she's doping. And I kind of think it's a case again where the punishment exceeds the crime. But a lot of people, for her, Shelby Houlihan, whatever, like I don't care. The rules are the rules. It's in her system. She missed the test. Bye bye. I just, I don't know. I'm starting to have a little more sympathy in these cases. Yeah, I have some. I mean, if you believe her story, I think you have to have sympathy. And there are two ways to look at it. You can either look at the Roberts take. Well, this is already sketchy that she missed a year for whereabouts. Like she had three whereabouts failures. Now it's happening again. She has this excuse. 
Like, why should we be believing her? Or you have the other, you know, devil's advocate is she missed a year because she was very careless if, with her whereabouts. If you look at some of the reasons, one of them, they were having some parade in her hometown. Another one, she was visiting the White House as part of the Olympic team. That's why she missed two of her tests. If you are the kind of person who is careless with your whereabouts in that case, you may be the kind of person to make another mistake like this on your whereabouts again. So I think that's the sort of defense for her. John, you make a good point. I have sympathy for her in the sense of, but I have less sympathy. I'm mean, like, at what level? Okay, like how many tests do you get to miss? And how many you provide? You can't be providing fake documents to them. I'm sorry. You just can't be doing that. So they're supposed to ignore that. It should be at least a, at least a one-year ban for something like that. They just can't have you submitting f- fake documents. I mean, I'm sorry. You, I think you it was can't. a handwritten note. So maybe she just changed the date. I would love to know how she did it, right? Like, uh, I don't know. You get something and you just sort of date it differently or something. Or you, oh, f- you write 417 and then you change 416 or something because it's supposed to be mailed but, that day. Well, the question I have is, okay, so maybe she's not great at paperwork or, you know, she's a little careless. What are the agents doing in this situation? They're taking 15%. Who's her agent? The agent's smart enough to obviously to feed this story to the New York Times to try to get her sympathy. So why aren't the agents handling all of this? For, their, for the amount of money they're making off an Olympic champion, I would say contact my agent. They will handle this. They will handle all the paperwork. Now, maybe she didn't want to tell the agent, but the agents need to be involved in these situations and, and, and be the ones professional instead of having some person – who's in over her head and traumatized by an abortion handling this. But at the end of the day, I think she should be suspended for submitting doctor documents to the doping authorities. That has to be a suspension, particularly when you're sitting on a one year suspension. So five years may be a little bit harsh. I don't know, but I, I have a lot more sympathy. Well, I, I actually, I, I have, I do have personal sympathy for both. I think it was traumatic for both of them, her and Shikari. And I see why, they didn't maybe necessarily make great decisions, but one of them, one of these rules is obviously for performance enhancing reasons, you can't providing fake documents to the the doping authorities. The other one, you can't smoke weed. There's no reason for that rule. But also we talk about Shikari and we said, Oh, it's like a death sentence, which is really not because she gets to compete a month from now. Who's saying that for Shikari Richardson though? I don't just hold on a second. I said that as a hyperbole. This is the end of her career. I mean, this is crazy. She's the defending Olympic champion. And we have no reason to doubt her story. She had an abortion so she could compete at the Olympics. The Olympics thing get canceled. And because of some paperwork she changed, she's now banished from the profession she wants to do for five years. I mean, what's she going to go do? For? She's making good money as an Olympic champion from Adidas. And now she's just cast aside. I mean... From a personal level, it's so unfortunate. I mean, like, unless you really think this was done with actual malice, I think it's another instance where the punishment vastly exceeds the crime. But I'm sure a lot of people say, hey, it's a privilege to compete, to get your doping stuff in order. I, but I, it's just, oh, my gosh. Well, I do understand why some people are saying in the Shikari case, we can't just ignore the rules because at some level you got to eventually draw the line. Where do you draw the line? I'm kind of drawing it here for some sort of suspension. Five years is probably a little bit much, but well, it's because it's her second major doping offense. And they said, they did say, look, we would have reduced her suspension one year because of the extenuating circumstances. But then when you look at her prior offense, it's a five-year ban. 
One one thing I think that has to happen here. So the two final points I want to make, and then we can finally talk about actual running on the track. One is that and one of you guys alluded to it already, but Shakari and Brianna were both dealing with like serious personal situations and you, you got to have some sympathy for their decision-making. It wasn't the best at the time because of these situations. I think everyone can relate to that and have some sympathy for that. At the same time, you pair those two with Christian Coleman. That is three of America's best hopes at a gold medal will not be competing for things that were pretty preventable offenses. Like Shelby Houlihan, that's a whole different thing because that's whether you believe her or not. If you believe the system's screwed or if she's an actual doper. For this, this is all things, whereabouts failures, marijuana, doctoring documents that could have been prevented. And I think it's incumbent upon either USATF or USADA at this point, they need to have better education about like what's going on and what your obligations are and what decisions you have to make. Because these professional athletes, they're adults, but this is now a patent. Three of America's highest profile athletes making bad decisions that are costing them a shot at Olympic glory. And America, if you have the best track team in the world, you need to have either USADA or USATF telling athletes, look at these examples. You got to know exactly what you're going to do. Don't make this mistake again. We can't have this continually happening to the country's best athletes. Good point. And, and they do do that in Kenya. I always thought it was unnecessary. I'm like, why do they need to educate these people? But imagine, you know, the education level in Kenya is not as high as in the U.S., but it's clearly a problem. And even you could say it's Shelby Houlihan. Maybe they shouldn't be eating out of food truck. So, but you talked about gold medal favorites, Sean. Let's, let's move to that. Let's talk about some of the action because we've had this Stockholm meet, we've had the Oslo meet, and we've had this Istvan Guya Hungary meet. And with all these results, I'm just wondering, like, are there any gold medal favorites? It just it seems absolutely wild to me. Like, okay, after the U.S. trials, we thought Clayton Murphy was the favorite in the gold medal. He goes over to Europe and can't even fin- – he finishes third in Hungary, losing to the British chef, Elliot Giles. Elliot Giles had raced a few days before. He lost to Ferguson Chariot, who was way back in Hungary. And then Michael Norman goes over to Hungary. He gets beat in the 400. Um Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, she's the 100-meter favorite, right? Was Shakari out? Shakari's the favorite. Well, but Dina Asher-Smith maybe, then I don't know. Like, Shakari anyways gets beat by Elaine Thompson yesterday. Like, let's go through these events. Who is the Olympic favorite? Do we have one in any of these events? 800. Men's 800. Who's the favorite? I don't think there is a favorite. You know, men's 1500. Jacob Ingebrigtsen. Is he really the favorite? I mean, how many events has he run? We can't say it's Timothy Cherry because as of right now, he's not on the team. But that steeplechase? You got to say the Moroccan guy? Yeah, I guess it is. It's probably El Bacali at this point. He's just a proven championship competitor, right? So, I mean, we could go event by event and kind of talk about the results, you know. But I, I, I just when, – when I look at all these – races of the last week or so i'm just like it's shocking to me how few favorites there are in any running event even if you count the sprints and i'm not sure if that's been the case always and i was looking back i mean one of the things i said about the prediction contest for the olympic trials was it was pretty easy to pick the winners i think i picked 14 of the 20 winners normally the winner is an outlier they're much better than everybody else but that's really not the case in 2020 at the world stage and it's going to make the olympics really exciting i mean men's 5,000. Who's the favorite there? Joshua Chapter guy's world record holder. I think it might be Caplimo. He ran 1255 the other day. He's run a fast 3000. 
but it's just all these events. It's absolutely crazy. Even on the women's side, 100. We don't have the favorite. 200, Gabby Thomas. Really? I mean, she's run like she has to be considered the favorite. She's run so fast, but what is she? She she's never been a dominant figure on the world scene. The 400, I would say Shawnee Miller Weibo, but we're not sure she's running it. And Stephanie Ann McPherson of Jamaica just smoked her in her 200 yesterday. 800, the event on the women's side where I think there's the biggest favorite, this is crazy to think. Women's 800, I'll think, Mill. And how in the hell am I saying that? This is a woman who's never run in Europe. But, and there's a lot of 156 women this year. There's a couple others besides her. But Faith Kipiegan, I think, might be the favorite in the 1500, but she's racing Safana San in the 1500. And Safana San decides to run the 1500. I'm putting her head over her. The 5K, we've got a we've got good day. We might have Hassan. We're not sure what Hassan's going to do. 10K, same thing. Or Barry, what do you guys think about this? There aren't many. One event I feel very comfortable confident in: men's 100 meters. Trayvon Bromel. He's the favorite, right? It would be a Thank big. You, it would be quite a big surprise if he lost that race. Can we all agree on that? Agreed. Yeah. The, but then I think you look at all these other ones, Robert. I mean, men's 200. Noah Lyles, I would say he's probably the favorite, you know, uh, but he hasn't been dominant, but he came through when it mattered. He is the reigning world champion. He's the favorite, but the, the, but the results yesterday kind of were like, okay, Bednarik lost to Andre de Grasse by 0.02, I think. And, and not Lyles only beat Bednarik by 0.04. So de Grasse is right there. He, now, we could say so this is jet lag, but some of this made me think there's a threat on Let's Run. I'm like, is the Hayward field short? I don't think it's short, but I do think those were optimal conditions for sprinting fast. So maybe these times weren't – maybe the track's super hard. Maybe their times aren't as impressive as they are when they get to Europe, or maybe people are running a little bit off. But it just – things got a lot more interesting. So, yeah, 200 is fine. 400, John? Constant, I mean, I would have said Michael Norman, but he got third. And even Stephen Gardner, I mean, Stephen Gardner ran 44-47, which was a season's best for him. But this was billed up as the race of the meet. You had Van Niekerk, who's entered. He ends up scratching. He said, I think um, he felt something in the warm-up, so he pulled out. And the second placer was Bryce Dedman of Texas A&M, who was seventh at the U.S. trials. He ran really good race. And then Michael Norman and Michael Cherry, who went one-two at the U.S. trials, they were third and fourth. So, I I guess you would probably say Gardner is the Olympic favorite. I mean, he he hasn't lost a race that he's finished this year. He is the reigning world champ, but I wouldn't say it's con- he barely won this race over Bright Stedman, who won't even be at the Olympics. Yeah, Gardner hasn't run fast this year, but John, you talk about having hasn't lost a race. By my records, and I could be off, I don't think he's lost a 400 that he's finished since the 2017 Worlds. So the guy wins consistently, which is, you know, interesting. But the 800, we've got nothing. The 1500, I think we're going to say Ingebrigtsen, right? Well, I mean, kind of depends. I I think we'll get to this in a second, Robert. A lot of these things we'll know more about after Monaco because, you know, Ingebrigtsen's facing Chariot in Monaco. But, yeah, I, I... I also think Chariot, it seems to me, based on the reports I'm seeing in Kenyan media, Kamar Etiang, who was the runner-up at the Kenyan trials, seems to have an issue with his number of out-of-competition of, out of tests. Remember, this happened in 2019 with some Kenyan athletes in the 5,000. Because Kenya is on the Category A, uh, Kenya, their Category A federation based on the AIU's you know, testing regime, 
that means that their athletes need to have at least three out of competition tests in the year leading up to competing at a world or Olympic championships. And for someone like Kamar Ediang, who's 19 years old and comes out of nowhere in Olympic year, he doesn't, he's not being tested enough. He's not in the testing pool. So it seems like that could be an issue. And if he's not on the team, obviously Chariot, who was fourth of the trials, will be in that. So I don't know if you can really say Chariot or Ingebrigtsen, which one's the favorite at this point. But is this a bad thing? I mean, I think it's great. The problem with track and field is the favorites win too much. To have a lot of good rivalries going to the Olympics is a great thing. I mean, we haven't mentioned the 400-meter hurdles. I guess was, we probably had it on the Friday 15, right? John, I'm trying to think when that world record was. Yeah, it was Thursday, so we talked about it. We talked about that at length. And, like, Karsten Warholm versus Ry Benjamin, I mean, it's going to be fabulous. So not knowing, like, oh, this guy's an 80% favorite into the Olympics, I think is a good thing for the sport. We need more rivalries. We need more racing. Grant Holloway raced in Hungary. He won. I think he's the favorite in the 100-meter hurdles. So some races, you have kind of strong favorites. A lot of them you don't, but that's what the sport needs. Absolutely. And yeah, Holloway's another one. He's definitely the heavy favorite in the 110-meter hurdles, especially Omar McLeod. Looks like he won't even be at the Olympics, and he was starting to run well this year. Uh, Marathon, I mean, do we say Kipchoge is the favorite in the marathon? I think you kind of have to, but... He did get. He was only eighth in London, lost full. What do you guys think? Is he is he the favorite? Yeah, he's got to be considered the favorite. He's the favorite, but yeah, I don't. The heat, tough course. Uh, you know, I don't. Is he oh, more of a course. favorite than Jacob Ingerson or something? I think so. It's harder than any other course he's run in his life, John. This guy's run pancake flat marathon courses. This this course has hills. I. It's got more hills than Rio. Does it? Yep. I thought the Tokyo one was tough. I didn't know anything about the Sapporo one, to be honest. I don't think it's a tough course. I don't think it's hard, but I, he's never run on a true marathon course in his life. Ooh. The world's greatest marathoner. Exposed. Wow, you just you just threw you just insulted London and Berlin as well with that. And Chicago. Those none of those are true marathon courses in your mind, well then. Oh, well, you know. It's like the ultra, those guys. They all right, let's, we've been, what about the women's steeplechase? What record holder got beat last week? She can't be considered the favorite anymore. She's lost a bunch of races this year. So I'm not putting Emma Coburn as the favorite. I think Hyven uh, Kiang, is she the favorite? I mean, I was looking up Hyven Kiang's record. I mean, she's beaten Chip Kowich, what, twice this year? Am I right about that, John? Both at the Kenyan Trials and last week, wherever they were racing? Right, in Stockholm. But she was also only fourth in the Diamond League in Doha. I mean, I guess if I had to pick a favorite in the steeple, I think I would say Hyven Kiang right now. But again, that's another race. Kiang, Chip Koech, and Emma Coburn, they're all running in Monaco on Friday. So we'll get a good, you know, a better read of that event once we see that race. So I looked up the head to head career record, Kiang versus Coburn. 16 wins for Kiang, seven for Coburn. Coburn did beat her at the 2019 Worlds. But, yeah, that's what I I think it's great that there's all this ambiguity. I just wish that in all the events we had all the best people running and doubling, and some of them they aren't. But that's what track and field needs is more – it's going to be an amazing Olympics because we don't know who the winners is. There's going to be a lot of drama. And that leads into this Diamond League segment for Monaco because I think after Friday we will have favorites. So many of these events are absolutely stacked. 
and let's go in the order that, the, that they're taking place. You know, um, Rye Benjamin has got, has dropped out of the 400 hurdles. We would have loved to have seen Benjamin versus Warholm. So I'm putting Warholm as the favorite there because he's showing up. But the women's 800, we've got loaded field. You know, you've got Antoya Gold, who's run 156.15 last week. You've got Rosemary Almanza, 156. Excuse me, Gold ran 156.44 last week. But you've got basically, you know, two women that have run 156 this year in Almanza and Gold. And then plus Alamu of Ethiopia has run 158. She's run 156 in the past. So pretty stacked field there. Although we don't have Othing Mill, obviously. Yeah, the Americans are the only American running is Kate Grace, who has been terrific of late. We should mention won the Diamond League in Oslo and then ran another PR 157.36 in Stockholm. But yeah, everyone in this field, apart from everyone in this field, has run 158 or faster in their life. So it's going to be a good race. So Halima Nakai, the reigning world champ, is in there as well. But none of the Americans, so it's kind of hard to get a total read on this event. And there's no Keely Hodgkinson either, which is who's the British champion. Yeah, so this one's sort of a rematch of which was second Stockholm. It's like Stockholm minus Hodgkinson with the world champion there instead. Very good race. And Almanza, I mean, she's run 156 twice this year. Gould dropped to 156. I'm kind of forgot she'd run that fast in the past. They do it again. I mean, you got to put them as for sure top three for the Olympic team. Will be, you know, medals. Yeah, I just don't. The Rosemary Almanza thing is puzzling to me. She's 28 years old. The 2019 World, she didn't make the final. 2017 Worlds, didn't make the final. 2016 Olympics went out in the first round. Like, she's never made a final of a major championship since she's 28 years old. And now she's dropping up PR down from 158 to 156. Oh, sorry, 157 to 156. But 157 was from 2015. So it's kind of weird. I hadn't heard her name for a while, and now she's out there running the best of her life. So it'll be interesting if she could. You don't see that that often in the 800. Well, do you want to say the same thing about Kate Grace? I think Kate Grace, I mean, I'm not I'm not accusing her of anything, but yeah, Kate Grace is also, we've talked about this. Like, Kate Grace is 32. She went from, she tried the 1500. She was decent at it, but then came back to the 800 and is now running faster than ever. You don't see that very often either, which I think is pretty, it makes it a pretty amazing story. And Robert gave this nasty look when he said that Kegaris did make the Olympic final. Rosamanza has never done anything sort of internationally outside of like NACACAC. I don't like people bad. There's a big threat on Let's Run. What did Jerry Schumacher do wrong with Kate Grace? And I don't like people bashing my boy Jerry. Remember on last week's podcast, I had to step off for a while to accept a call from Jerry. But I, I don't know. Kate Grace was eighth in the world under, uh, you know, in, in 2016. And that was with the intersex athletes ahead of her. She was already pretty good. She tried to move up to the 1500 because that made sense at the time with what she was facing in the, in the 800. She was never going to sniff a medal with those three women ahead of her. That was never going to happen. So she tried the 15. It didn't work out. She comes back to the eight and you know, she's roughly, I know she's running faster this year than she has in the past, but do I think she's much better than she was in the past? Not really. I mean, she made the Olympic team. She won the trials in 2016. Now, I know there was a fall that helped her. She made the Olympic final, but she went from eighth in the world now to fourth at USA's. I mean, one, one could argue that. She wasn't fourth. She was seventh, but. Oh, well, even worse. 
So, all right, men's fifteen in Monaco. Chariot versus Ingebrigtsen. Ingebrigtsen's never beaten him. Chariot won in Stockholm over the weekend, three thirty-two. I didn't think he looked totally convincing, and that's maybe because I'm just used to seeing Chariot blow people out a lot more. Like he he was in the lead at the bell. He didn't have a huge lead. And then the last 100, he did really turn it on and, and look better than everyone else. But this is going to be tougher competition against, um, you know, Jakob Ingebrigtsen. So, I mean, it's just going to be telling. You And he also gets a chance for revenge against Charles Smotwo, the Kenyan champion. So, basically, well, you know, we've kind of seen this story before. Is is this finally the time Ingebrigtsen turns the tables? I think it is. I think Chariots looked a little vulnerable. Ingebrigtsen, he, I guess he had, what, he had a sore throat last week or something. I think he'll be okay. I'm picking Ingebrigtsen to end his skid and finally beat Timothy Chariot for the first time. I didn't watch this race in Stockholm. Walden said he didn't look great. He won by a full second. How much more do you want him to win by? I don't get it. By the way, Josh Thompson was in this race. Josh Thompson was pretty close to making the U.S. team, right? How far back was Josh? Never saw him, Robert. Well, he ran 337, took 335 to win the team. So Josh Thompson's only two seconds back at the U.S. trials. Well, Chariot just beat him by five seconds in this race. So I see what you're saying, John, why we think the Ingebrigtsen's going to beat him. And it's tempting to say that. And why would he lose the Canyon trials? Like him finishing fourth is very weird there. But long live the king, Timothy Chariot for the win. I still think he should be the favorite. If, if Ingebrigtsen beats him here, fine. If not, I'm keeping him as my favorite. Well, yeah. I mean, Chariot's tough as nails. This guy is a fighter. He goes out there. He's bolts to walls. Like, I'm not, I don't mean this as disrespect from towards Chariot because that guy's going to fight tooth and nail every time out. I just think Ingebrigtsen, it's his time, and he's really, really good too. Yeah, this is the race of the, the meet. I mean, for distance fans, I think. And we're going to have a live supporters club show afterwards. I think that's when we have to do it. Right after the meet, join the VIP supporters club. Let'srun.com slash subscribe. You can watch live or hear us on demand afterwards. All right. Men's steeple. I think this is going to be very interesting. There's no El Bacali in here, but we do have the Americans, the top two Americans from the trials, which would be Hillary Bohr and Bernard Kida. And Bohr was basically saying, you know, he's in, he thinks he's in about 805 shape right now. So that would make him the second fastest American ever, only behind Evan Jager, if he can run that. And it would also put him in contention for the win. You've got the Ethiopian trials champion, which is Tekele Bikila Tedese, 18 years old, hadn't really done anything before this year, but he ran 809 in that Ethiopian trials. I think this is a chance to see, could he be the gold medal favorite? Concesso Skipruto is also running. I mean, he hasn't finished a race for years, so who knows? But he has shown the lot, like year after year, even when he's banged up, he can put it together. And basically, this is his last chance saloon. He did He dropped out of the trials, I believe, in Kenya, not named to the team. If he comes out and wins this race in like 8-0-something, Kenya might revisit its Olympic selection and say, hey, actually, we're going to put the reigning champion on here. Or maybe he didn't even run the Kenyan trials. But if he does nothing in this race, that's it. The, the, the dream is over for Kipruto. So I'll be watching him as well. And then, you know, you have a few other Edo guys uh, in the race. But those are sort of the storylines as I see it. 
I thought you guys were saying the Olympic entries were already put in. How are they going to change it, John? Well, that's a good point. Maybe Kenya did submit that whole team. I think, well, I think with the case of Chariot, Chariot's like the alternate, right? You can name four. Maybe they named, I need to look at the actual Kenyan team to see who they named. So maybe the dream's already dead for Kipruto. What I want to know about the steeple is, is getting at Wally really not going to do the steeple? I don't understand this. Like, I know he's run 1253, but it seems like the, all you got to do is beat Al Bacali and you got the gold medal. The steeple's so watered down this year. I mean, Hilary Bohr, I think he very well could win this race. And then besides Al Bacali, I think he's in line for the silver medal. Yeah, I th- it's weird for Wally. You would think if he wants to win, but I think he just likes the 5K more. So if you don't like running the steeple, if you like the 5K more and you're one of the best 5K guys in the world, you run that. But I agree. If his best shot at gold, definitely in the th- in the steeple. Well, I guess he didn't even medal in the last steeple. He was only fourth. But I don't understand like the schedule here. So I'm looking at, at, the, at the Monaco schedule. So the men's 1500 is absolutely loaded. Why is that running? You know, that's like one of the first events. They're gonna, that should be one of the last events. Then they're going to do the men's steeple. And then, okay, moving on. Men's 800. This is the, I mean, we talked about the race of the meet, but this might be it in terms of the actual field. You've got Amos, Patrick Dobek, 143 this year. Um, Bryce Hopple. Emmanuel Career, Clayton Murphy, Ferguson Chariot. I mean, the field basically has everybody in it, except for Michael Cerrone, from what I can tell, John. I mean, the Kenyan champion. Because if you look at the yearly list for 2021 in the men's 800, Murphy leads the way at 143.17. He's in this. Dobek. Former former Herbert, 143.73. I mean, those are the then you've got a couple Kenyans, Elias Nenegini, and Cornelius too. I don't even think they're going to the Olympics. I don't think they are. Some British guy named Oliver. No, you haven't Dust. talked about the you haven't talked about the Brits. Like you totally skipped over them. If these guys were Americans, you'd be freaking out. Elliot Giles just beat Clayton Murphy. He's the British champ. He's in here. He ran 143 indoors this year. He's really good. And then you got this 20-year-old, Oliver Dustin. He runs 143.82 earlier this year. That was basically a two-second PR. Then he's second at the British Trials behind Elliot Giles. So these two guys absolutely are medal threats, and they're in this race. I just feel like it's kind of you're talking about Patrick Dobek, and then you just he's only a tenth of a second faster than Dustin, and you're just skipping totally over them. So the Brits are in here too, and then I think that threats to medal as well. Or they can finish tenth in this race because it's so loaded. No, I was trying to go through the list to see which of these Kenyans and which of these British guys were on the team. This race basically has every single person in the world under 144 this year who's on an Olympic team, um, from what I can tell. Because some of these Kenyans who have the 143s are not in the Olympics, except for Isaiah Jewett. He's run 143.85, but let's be honest, no one's expecting Isaiah Jewett to win the Olympics. So this race has everyone in it, except for Michael Cerrone, who hasn't run 143, but did win the Kenyan trial. So this race is going to be really eye-opening. Yes, I'm excited to see what this Dustin kid can do. Giles looked great. I just think it's the type of thing, though. You got a Miltuka who won the medal last time. One race, one with someone's going to be on top. Another race, someone else is going to be on top. I don't think anyone's way better than everybody else in the event. So, you know, really interesting there. Let's keep going here. We've got the women's 1500, men's 100, women's steeplechase. Women's 1500 but actually, by Diamond Lake Sanders, it's not all that deep, but I don't give a shit because up front, it's the race we need We need to see. Faith, Fit, Kip, Yegon, 
versus Safan Hassan. We got to check the Netherlands entries. So hopefully Hassan just entered everything 15, five and 10. So she can still make her decision. Yes, Rob, you're, you're correct, Robert. That did happen. Also in this race, we've got for Wayne Hailu, who is the 20 year old Ethiopian champion. She ran 357 to win the Ethiopian trials. She's in here. Could she go a bit faster? That'll be interesting. And the Americans, Heather McLean and Corey McGee chasing sub fours. But Robert, I want to talk about this Hassan thing because there's nothing we like more on this show than talking about Hassan and what events people should do at the Olympics and what doubles are doable. She's entered all three events at the Olympics. And I just want to throw out the possibility, could she run all three in Tokyo? Because I think it's not ideal, but it's not impossible. Here's what she would have to do. So the 5,000, day one, you have the prelims. And then day four, you would have the 1,500 first round at 9.35 a.m. 9.40 p.m. that night is the 5K final. Not ideal, but I think it's possible. Then day six. That's very possible to run a 1,500-meter prelim 12 hours before the final. Not, not an issue. Well, okay. Anyway, day, day six, 1,500 semis. Day eight, 1,500 final. Day nine, 10K final. That seems possible, and I would like to see her try it. Thank you, John. Thank you for bringing this up because we, we we briefly mentioned this on another podcast, and I said, wait, this isn't that hard. All she's got to do is run the fifteen hundred semis on the same day as the five thousand fifteen hundred first round on the same day as the five thousand final, and that's not even probably the five thousand out of her favorite event because she's not a world champion in that event. So who cares? And then you finish the fifteen, and you can always decide to come back to the ten or not. This could be legendary. She could, could become like. Who's that dude that won all the gold medals? Pavel Nurme. Seriously. I mean, could you imagine this? Like, she wins the 1500 5K double. Yeah, that's day eight. And then the speculation is just, is she going to come out for the 10K? And then she emerges from the stands underneath the stadium for the 10K final 24 hours later. And everyone's like, holy shit, she's going for it. I mean, actually... I'm fantasizing this because there aren't going to be many fans in the stands, if any fans in the stands. But like, can you imagine how exciting that is? She's already won the 1500 and the five, and then she's lining up on the start line for the 10K. I think that's going to be tough because, like I said, look, 1500 finals day eight, 10K finals day nine. Like, running back to Olympic finals and back to back days is not easy as much as we want to like trivialize it. But oh my God, I want her to do the triple. Like, how exciting was it when Cesaret tried the triple at NCAA indoors? We need Hassan to triple in Tokyo. And this is someone who never has won an Olympic medal. So does she, you know, do you fly, try to fly too close to the sun? I'd love to see her do it. And it would be epic. I mean, last the Worlds, with her coach getting banned in the middle of the meet, she pulls off the what we thought was impossible, 1,500 10K double. And just, you know, we can think ahead, John, to some other meets. Robert's always wondering how they can let him double and stuff. At the last Olympics, she was running the 800 and the 1500. So, Eugene, she'll have to somehow get in the quadruple. But, like, after she won the fi- the 1510, don't you think in 2019, if she had found a way to also run the five, like, I don't remember how the schedule was, wouldn't you have picked her to win the five over Obiri, who she totally destroyed in the 10K? I know I would if she found a way to run that as well in Doha. 100%, 100%. All right, the final distance event in Monaco. And then we got Gail Devers. Um, women's steeple. And we've got Emma Coburn. 
the great USA Hope in there. We got Beatrice Chepkowicz, the world record holder who keeps going out too fast and dying. We have Hyvin Kiang, who's been beating Beatrice and is the Kenyan champ. Gesa Kraus, who was second in Stockholm or Oslo. They're too close together, and they're both Nordic countries, so I think I'm allowed to just confuse which meet they were. Yeah. Um, I think that's it in terms of, oh, this Bahrainian athlete. I'm sorry, I don't know much about her. Winfred Yavi, she's run 902 this year, so that puts her in the contention for medals. I don't know who that used to be before she switched over to Bahrain. She's been Winfred Yavi for a while, I think. I'm I'm calling it. Three years ago on this track, Courtney Ferrix beat Emma Coburn for the only time in her life, and she set the American record of nine flat point eight five. That record will not belong to Courtney Ferrix at the end of this week. Emma Coburn sub nine. I don't know if she's going to win this race, but I'm calling it. This is what she's been working for. I think she finally gets it. Sub nine for Emma Coburn, American record. Wow. I mean, she is the world champion, or was, in 2017. But we'll all admit that was pretty fluke. Well, she ran 9.02. Like, but, John, come on. Like, uh, Chepkowicz missed the water jump, had to make up ground. It was just kind of a crazy race. I guess besides her, there's only one person, right? So maybe it's not that fluke. No, Ruth, Ruth Jabet, who hadn't been banned yet, also bombed and then ran like 855 a couple weeks later so there were a couple things that had to happen but maybe i shouldn't explain a doper but heading into tokyo if she wins this one or just even on paper you got to start thinking okay she can go sub nine is anyone no one's sub nine this year if i'm not mistaken you just got to think oh my god emma cover an olympic gold medal favorite yeah that's crazy but she has to win. She hasn't won a Diamond League in seven years. So she's still, you know, if she wins the race, she'll be the favorite. But there, there are a lot of other good women in this event. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Can someone tell me whatever happened to Nora Tanui? This is the woman that went one Doha nine flat. She has not been going to Worlds because she's, we think she's trying to run for some other country. Yeah, we think she's trying to run for Kazakhstan. She didn't run the. She doesn't. She hasn't switched nationalities yet, and she didn't run the Kenyan trials, so she's not going to be at the Olympics. Well, she's been entered for Kazakhstan into the Olympics, and why isn't she in this field? This doesn't make any sense. Can you try to get to the bottom of this? Okay, I don't know why she's not running this race, but well, if you're not running the Olympics, why wouldn't you be in this race? I, I don't know. Maybe she's not healthy. She hasn't raced since the end of May. She only ran that one race in in Doha. So yeah, good question, Robert. I'm not totally sure. Also, before we stop the Monaco, I mean, we need to talk about the 100, guys. This men's 100, you would never see this in the age of Usain Bolt. This is very rare to get a men's 100 field this good. Like, the men's 100, notoriously, the top guys dodge each other on the circuit. Not here. Ronnie Baker, Trayvon Bromel, Andre DeGrasse, Fred Curley, Akane Simbine. I would say those are probably the favorite to take the top five spots in Tokyo in some order. They are all running this race. DeGrasse has been in really good form. He just, he always has like those weird wind readings or he just barely wins. Like this one, he's probably going to have to run pretty fast. His PR is only 9.90 in 100, which seems crazy for a guy who has meddled in 
three global championships in that event. Then Simbine just ran 9.84 in Hungary on Tuesday, African record. That's number two in the world this year behind Bromel. This is an Olympic final preview. And I, as I expect to, and will happen in the Olympic final, I expect Trayvon Bromel to win. It's an amazing field. And this should go last. I don't understand why this isn't the last event. Again, simple marketing people. You're going to run this event and then you're going to end the meet with the women's steeplechase. I mean, the women's steeplechase, don't get me wrong, is a good field. But you, you send the people home with the men's uh, loaded men's 100 like this. And you need to put the men's 1500 later, later in the menu. I guess they want to spread it out, but uh, can't wait. We're going to do a live show afterwards. But first, folks, until then, we've got a couple interviews to get you to. We're going to have the Olympic champion, double Olympic champion, Gail Devers, followed by James Francovilla of the American Red Cross. All right, Robert. And before we get to any of that, we actually have another segment for you guys. I don't think you guys have met him officially. Well, you guys know him, but our listeners don't. We have a Let's Run.com intern, and we decided we'd take the polls with a couple issues that may concern him. He's got some news about Nigel Amos, and he talks about their new name, image, and likeness laws that affect NCAA athletes, which he is one of. So we're going to talk to him right now. Then we'll have Gail Divas, and then we'll have Robert's interview at the end. So stay tuned. All right, guys. We have a, we're going to try a new segment here. We have a let's run.com intern. Turns out he's very fast. I had no idea when he first emailed us. And now there's also these new NCAA rules, name, image, and likeness. John will probably start out to paying him more than you. These rules came in this week. I'm not sure what the deal is, but our intern is Carl Winter from Pepperdine. And... Carl is a 340-1500 meter runner. I'll let him give his accolades here in a second. But I was like, Carl, we're getting old. We need like this week in social media on the podcast. I was like, come up with a couple of things. And Robert, guess what Carl has? It's a Nigel Amos update. But the other thing Carl, I figured out in discovering this out is our intern has beaten the legendary, the great, the Olympic gold medal favorite in Robert's mind, Nigel Amos, in a race this year. Carl, welcome. Hey, guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. My, my claim to fame, I guess, beating Nigel Amos and beating Nico Young in high school. But it was a 1500 that I beat him in this year, not an 800. He said, I talked to him after the race. He said it was his first ever 1500, and he was happy with running 345 in that race, or 344. Okay, first of all, tell everyone how fast you are and where you beat them. Like, probably before this image and likeness stuff, I was like, wait, am I allowed to mention? Because we hired you for your journalism background, not how fast you are. But now that these rules are out there, I guess I could mention how fast you are. Yeah, I think I ran a 340 after I first emailed you. So you guys are you guys are off the hook on that one. I beat Nico Young in high school when, at, at the Arcadia Invitational, actually, in the 3200. I ran 912, and he ran, like, 920. But... We won't talk about that I was two years older than him at the time. Nigel Amos, that was this year in, I think, May. I ran 342 to his 344. He's back and running 800s again, his first one of the year. So that was the first thing that I picked up, which I'm sure that you guys saw as well, that he ran 145. It was like a 50.5 first lap and like a 53.5. So nothing special, but it was a random meet in South Africa. And he said third step in the 141 zone. So he's feeling good. And I guess we'll see if that's really true this week in Monaco. I can't wait to see him race. I mean, we, we've been 
a big theme of, the, of this week's pie of this podcast today has been like, who's the Olympic favorite? And I keep saying we can't, we have to see what this guy can do because he's, you know, you don't want 141 unless you're extremely talented to do it twice. What eight or nine years apart is insane to do it a third time would be crazy. Yeah. And so this year he ran, I mean, he's run a 46, six in the, or 46, nine, I think in the 400 and the 344 and the 15, which he said was his first one ever. And yeah, talking to him after the race, he was really excited about that and ran 141 in 2019. So I guess we'll know what to think after this week when he faces off with Murphy and career. Uh, but yeah, he seems to be pretty stoked about it. And when you raced him, did like they have introductions beforehand or it's just sort of like a college 1500. You don't realize everybody's in there. And then afterwards you're like, Oh my God, Nigel Amos was in the field. Yeah, I think they introduced him. Everybody knew, everybody was there and knew who he was. You had the Olympic silver medalist in there. But I think people also knew that it was his off event. And that race also had like Aiden Troutner, who won NXN, and the high schooler, Colin Salmon, who ran something ridiculous this year at Arcadia. So it was an interesting mix of pros and collegians. But he wasn't a factor at all. He was in the back the whole time. Yeah, but Robert, you were probably more imp- impressed by his 344 than his recent 145 for 800 because the whole thing that sold you on a thing, Mo, was she ran like 415 or 416 for 1500. And Robert's, Robert's basic theory is like, if an 800 runner takes up the fit, runs a 1500 and runs a PR, even if it's the first time they've ever run the distance, that's evidence that their strength has improved. And now that they're going to be better in the 800. So that is definitely what you were thinking after you saw this 344, right, Robert? Not entirely. At first I thought, okay, that's a slow four minute mile. It's not bad. But then when I see a Donovan Brazier run a 337, 338, and I look at their 400 speed, I mean, you said 46. I've seen him, I see a 45, 69 for Amos this year. So I know Brazier's that fast. Brazier's got better endurance. So I'm thinking Olympic gold, maybe he should be running a little bit better than 344. So it kind of depends on what their past history is with the event. I mean, he's more a 400 guy. I'm not ruling him out for Olympic gold. Certainly with Brazier not there. I'm wondering who the favorite is. So I, I think it might be him. Yeah. And Carl, you know, how's the internship going? Like you fill the coffee every morning. Can you tell us some of the other tasks? It's virtual, but every day we make you virtually go get us coffee and that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. I virtually shine the shoes and everything. No, it's been a lot of fun. I actually, I was in Eugene last week traveling, uh, actually, south with my girlfriend and stopped in Beaverton and Eugene was like, dang, I was a week late for covering the trials. You guys didn't fly me out there to cover them. Um, so that was, that was unfortunate. That was a little disappointing, but no, I, I didn't expect that. It was, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. I was actually thinking about that. A normal trials, we probably would have had you come out, but this year employee 1.1, Steve didn't come. It was so limited. We're like, I don't even know who's allowed there. What's the deal? So you'll have to, well, you'll graduate next summer, but maybe Eugene 2022. And also, if you told us that you had a girlfriend, we have to fire you because everyone knows. Well, there's there's two people on Let's Run, right? Like the guy who makes $250,000 a year and has a super smoking hot wife. And then, but the other stereotype is, you know, all of us live in the basements and don't date people. One thing I want you to have, write an article on, and we'll just talk about this real briefly because I think you're just figuring this out. But there's this new name, image, and likeness rule in the NCA. And essentially it says athletes can monetize their name, image, and likeness. And so we're sort of wondering, does that mean an athlete can sign an endorsement deal with Adidas or Nike or the local car dealership? What have you heard about this? 
Yeah, from my understanding, no, you can't be like a totally paid professional athlete getting paid for your performance and also be a collegiate athlete. But I don't fully understand it yet either because it kind of also is based on state laws. Like different states have their own laws on this type of thing. So right now I've seen, uh, I mean, college kids are jumping on this. You'd think that only like the best football and basketball players would get these deals. But no, I mean, even in the first week of this thing, people are signing deals with everybody from like t-shirt brands to barstool sports and basically getting paid for things like endorsements, personal appearances, basically getting called a so-and-so brand athlete um, and just, you know, repping merch from these brands and things like that, or even like video game teams where kids can get paid now. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting and I'm still figuring it out with how it's going to work with the NCAA for my own school, like anything that we want to enter, we have to get cleared with our compliance office. But uh, it's, it's crazy how quickly kids have caught on and tried to monetize themselves. And I think it means you can monetize things like your own YouTube channel, which in the past has been a big issue for NCAA athletes. Uh, but I don't think that Cole Hawker can run for Nike and also run for Oregon, at least not in the way I understand the rules so far. Okay, because his contract with Nike would basically say like, hey, you have to show up and compete at the pre-classic and you get time bonuses for this sort of thing. And if it's related to his performance, that's a no-go. But like, could they just say, hey, we'll give you a, we'll give you like 20K a year to wear our gear and there's no expectations from like, you have to perform at certain meets so you could get reduced or do you, do you know anything about that? Yeah, I, I don't know for sure. I think they could probably give him merchandise and, and say that he's a Nike athlete, but if anything is tied to performance or like a yearly salary just for running, I don't think that it would work that way. Um, but again, it, it kind of also contingent on state laws as well, the, and in contingent with the, with the NCAA. So people, people don't really understand how that's going to work yet. Yeah. I mean, it's not like Nike would be getting much for that investment anyway, because he already wears all Nike gear with Oregon. So, you know, they might just wait. All right, Carl, for next week, we need you to have, come up with a list of who Let's Run should sign. I think we're going to try to manipulate the system and ruin the NCAA. Like, this is driving me. I don't think this is going to work so well. I, 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 I already saw like this one Miami football alum is like, I'm going to pay everyone on the team $500 a month to support my – he's got an MMA training fighting club or something. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. The, like, the, the worst guy on the team doesn't bring as much – business is the top guy it seems like just a payment to everybody so well i i do want the college stars to stay in college i want nagus to stay at notre dame hawker to stay in oregon i don't think we're going to be able to sell enough t-shirts to make that happen but if i just speaking of t-shirts robert carl pointed out there's a Cole hawker t-shirt now with his likeness out there and carl was implying you know our shirt wouldn't have been allowed but carl we didn't use anyone's likeness we just Put your move and a three fifty fifty five. Like we got around that. that. That was like old bar stool. Like when they they would sort of like have something hinting at somebody, but not really use their likeness. That that was the model there. Wait, someone stole my shirt idea. I said we should have a sh shirt. That means that it's copyright infringement. I'm going to sue them. So Carl, send me that link, and my lawyer will be on top of that quickly. Yeah, and Cole Hawker's making money off of it. He signed a deal with them, uh, but it is a picture of him with the sh not just the lettering. 
Uh, so I, yeah, I guess if anyone were to make money off the let's run shirt, it'd be Carter Christman if he uh, trademarked the your move, but I don't think he did. So I think you guys are in the clear. But yeah, next time I run on a test, I'll need a let's run singlet. Uh, so you guys are going to have to give me that so I can be able to, the first let's run student athlete. For the record, we sent Carter Christman free shirts. That was his big payment. And we should have printed a lot more shirts because they would have taken off right now. Well, we got the NBC advertising. It was on like Cole Hawker, one of the guys he hugged after the race was a guy he had like ripped off the sleeves and made it into sort of a penny who was wearing the Your Move t-shirt. So definitely some brand awareness right there. All right, Carl. Also, guys, I mean, we're just sort of getting going here. Carl's on the West Coast. He's already up. How far did you run today? 10 miles. Okay, you're going to be the NCAA champion this year. I mean, Hawker's going pro, such and such. I don't know. He made the NCAA meet this year. I don't know why. If you ran 340 this year, you can for sure be under 335 next year. So, Eugene, 2022. Get on it. Oh, wait. Robert's got something to say. Uh, correct. He didn't really make the NCAA meet. I mean, I, Carl, I love you, but when I was coaching in college, it drove me nuts. The college coaches would try to act like a kid making the regional meet is making the NCAA meet. Technically, according to the NCAA, it is, but come on. He didn't make it to Eugene. He made it to the West Regional. Well, then, even Carl would. It's funny because I saw NCA's virtual. You're totally right. I just blinked. I was like, well, he made the qualifying round, not the final. No, he made the qualifying to the qualifying. Hey, wow, Robert calling you out, Carl. Get out there and you got to train a little more. You do doubles now? Like, you got another run this afternoon? I do have a double today, actually. So I got to get ready for cross country first. Um, but yeah, and last thing, I don't know if John's mentioned this yet, but good luck to the three Lions today. I'll be rooting for Denmark. Yeah, I mean, that's the wrong choice, but uh, hopefully hopefully the three Lions prevail on. You know, it's coming home. We're home. We're playing the game in London. We better win. For those who don't know what he's talking about, there was a European semifinal game between Denmark and England today. Carl, are you Danish of any sort, or is it just... No, I'm German, actually. So I had to congratulate John a week or two ago when uh, the the English prevailed 2 nothing at Wembley. I tried not to trigger John at the beginning of the podcast, John. I thought about opening the show. Instead of doing an ad read for the Red Cross, I started... I thought about doing this instead. Get used to that, John. That's the Danish national anthem. I, I, do they play it after a goal? Like every time you're going to, at least you'll hear it at the beginning, and you'll probably have to hear it again when the, in, in the European final when before the match when they play that. Yeah, not doesn't really trigger me. Uh, no one knows the Danish national anthem unless you're from Denmark. So, uh, yeah, not a big deal. If I had my own T-shirt company, I also was going to make a red and white "Let's Run" T-shirt. It was going to be just all red with the white "Let's Run." To support right. Dan- Denmark, you know that, those are England's colors too, though, Robert. You're just being ridiculous here. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I st- it bothers me that England's its own country. I don't get this. What, when can Maryland have its own World Cup team? Anyway, I mean the, the entire America, the entire United States couldn't qualify for the last one. So how about, how about you try to do that first before Maryland gets its own team? All right, Carl. Thank you for joining us. We'll have you again on uh, Keep Up the Good Work. All right, guys, we're joined. This might be a first, an Olympic gold medalist, at least on the stretching side. I think we've had him on the distance side before. The legendary Gale Beavers, two-time Olympic 100-meter champion, a three-time champion in the hurdles, which many people consider her better event. She's also got an amazing personal story. She had Graves' disease. It 
Gail will talk about this in a minute, really messes up your thyroid. It was like debilitating. She could barely walk. They thought she might lose her legs. Instead, she went on to become three-time Olympic gold medalist when you're talking relay. An American legend. She was running, I think, yeah, Gail, you'll know the stats, like 12.4 in the hurdles, like 12 years apart. It's an honor to be talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate you uh, considering me for an interview. Thank you. Sure. So first off, how much of the Olympic trials did you watch this past, I guess, week and a half or nine days, whatever it is? Every day. <laughs> I had it set. Everybody knew, don't bother me. I've got to watch the trials. Um, I, I watched it. I mean, I have become a fan of my sport since, you know, quote unquote, retiring. And so it's, 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 it's awesome to watch these athletes and get out there, um, you know, doing what they do. So I've watched everything. Okay, great. Um, well, I guess I was going to ask you, I think the first place to go is the 100 meters and the 100 meter hurdles. Like, what do you think? I mean, I guess Kenny Harrison and Brianna McNeil, they've been around. That's kind of your main event. I don't know why people say that's your main event, but uh, <laughs> let's talk about the hurdles first. And what do you think about Kenny Harrison? And then I, Brianna McNeil, you know, other stuff with the, with the tests with the drugs and stuff. But, like, what do you think of them? What do you think of the race? Oh, I think, uh, I mean, I was, like I said, it was, a, it was an honor for me to watch them compete. And just to see Kenny, you you saw her in her eyes that she was focused and she was determined to make this team. And then you had Brianna, uh, the same thing, you know, with not knowing if she'll be able to uh, run or not with the appeal. She was just steadfast and I'm going to make this team and whatever happens, happens. And, you know, that was a great thing to see. And then you've got new new up and coming runners, you know, and I talk about that in the 100 and the hurdles. And so all of that is, is fascinating for me to, to sit back and watch these athletes get out there. They're running fast time. A lot of the hurdlers are really focusing on their sprinting now, and it, it shows. And it's, um, it's, I think we've got a great team in both the 100 meters. You know, you talk about the 100 meters, you talk about Shakari Richardson, who uh, has just been running phenomenal times. And I know she uses Florence as her inspiration. So to watch her get out there and to compete and to put up these times like we have not seen it in a couple of years, I'm excited to see and, and hoping that, you know, that gold medal from the, our last Olympic gold medal in the 100 meters was mine in 1996. And I'm just hoping that we can bring it back home this year. Yeah, she looked great. She's sort of taken off on social media. She's got a lot of style. I mean, you had the style with the, with the fingernails and, and, and the hair. She's got the hair and She's not afraid to speak her mind. I mean, and she's running like crazy fast times. <laughs> she is. That's, that's the key. That's the key. You've got to, you know, you've got to be able to, you know, put up those times and she has and you know, people are loving it. And it, it's been a while. You know, we had that on the men's side with Usain. Now we have it. And, you know, we've not seen those kind of times consistently since Florence. I mean, and we've had, you know, some, some great athletes to come in between that time you know, if you if you look at the history of the 100 meters, our first female 100 meter gold medal was in 1928. And then, you know, we went and we dominate the 60s and then we dominated the 80s and the 90s. So it's time for it to come back. I mean, I know there's some athletes who have some things to say about that. And um, but I'm Team USA, so I'm looking for them to just run really, really well. Yes, yeah, I mean, she's looking great. But I guess Shelly Ann Fraser Price, she's you know trying to get. I think she'd be the 
to, to get the what third Olympic hundred meters. That would be her third, and that would make her, you know, set her apart and put her in a class all her own because, you know, no one has has done three. Elaine has something to say about that because if she comes back, that will put her in the two category back to back. Um, then you've got uh, Dina, you've got Schiffer, you've got there's so many athletes that you can have your favorite, but you don't really know. You have to, you know, we kind of have to wait until they start running around and see how people are actually responding. But um. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Team USA, so I'm, I'm wanting us to bring that gold medal back to the United States. Yeah, I think we've got a good chance this year, although it's going to be a great competition. I mean, it's going to be fabulous. It is. It is. And you were talking about Kenny and Brianna, you know, bringing so much speed to the hurdles. I think the thing with you, layman's sort of thing was like, oh, Gail's too fast for the hurdles. You know, right. she has so much speed, she'll clip a hurdle and, and can fall down. Is that a, an accurate assessment? or I think, or or do you just say, no, I had the speed you need to be totally world-class. Yeah, I, I would never say you're too fast. I mean, it's a race, track and field is a race against the clock. So you can't right. say somebody's fast or something. It's a matter of negotiating those hurdles. And yes, if you were to take the hurdles away and just set all of the hurdlers up, move the hurdles at the last minute and then say, get out there and run. Yes. Did I have the fastest speed? Absolutely. You know, out of the hurdlers. But it was just a matter of me trying to negotiate that. And those are like, those are challenges, and, and we're all faced with challenges. You know, I you know, people talk about me even coming back and why the hurdles, why this or that. You know, um, when I talk about challenges, I think about my Graves disease, you know, because there was a chance that me being, being in the race, you know, when I, in 88, um, I was going for the hurdles and the 100, and I started having symptoms of my Graves disease and had to pull out of the 100, and the hurdles at that time was easier for me. So that was a challenge that I had to deal with. Then it was a matter of um, getting to the games and not knowing what was going to happen. And I ran slower than I had ever run, you know, in the hurdles. And that was my event. You know, months prior to that, I had broken the American record and didn't know at that time, you know, that I was dealing with my Graves disease until, unfortunately, two and a half years, almost three years later when I was diagnosed. So you know, you talk about challenges. The hurdle is a challenge. It's one of the reasons why I like it because I always tell people it's a challenge and there's two things you can do when you're faced with a challenge. You can conquer it or you can be conquered. And my Graves disease taught me that, you know what, you just got, you've got to go for it. You've got to know the goals that you set for yourself and be willing to work for those. And I think when I think about the hurdles, it's always that constant reminder to me, whether it's that I fell over the hurdle or whatever, that I was still successful because I completed that, that, that journey. And, you know, my journey of came full circle in dealing with my Graves disease, wondering, will I ever run again? You know, and then finally to take my victory lap in 92 after, you know, winning my gold medal in my first gold medal in the, in the hundred. And I remember taking the victory lap and, you know, the people were like, oh my God, the, the, uh, the uh, reporter was telling me that I need to slow down because I guess I was running really fast. And, I I remember just thinking, you know, you gotta you don't have to keep up with me because you don't know what I've gone through, you know, to actually be here. When you're when you're an Olympian, you know, when you make that team, which I'll look back at at these athletes this past nine days of having a goal and setting that goal of making the team, just to make the team is like, oh my gosh, now I can breathe. But now the work begins because you want to go there and you don't want to just say, I was an Olympian, I made the team. I want to go there and I, co I want to compete to the best of my ability. And for me, and I can only use myself as an example of saying, okay, well, I've run very well. I want to get there. I've broken the American record. 
in the hurdles and my time was 12.61. And had I got to Seoul and just run that time, second place time was 12.63, but I ran something like 14 something. And so I was not pleased. And, but I thought that what I had set was a realistic goal and I had to go back and, you know, refocus and set new goals for myself, trying to figure out well, what's wrong. That was realistic. What happened? And, you know, I started losing weight. I started doing, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and the reason I keep talking about challenges is because, you know, you talk about these athletes and, and for them to have gone through what they went through with the pandemic and all of that, those were, that was a challenge. And they had to figure out how to negotiate with that challenge. Same as I had to do with my grave disease, but you have to be relentless and say, look, I'm just going to stay steadfast and really keep searching, keep searching until I got an answer. Same with them. They have to be ready because you don't know if the games are going to happen. So um, I look at my challenge of my grave disease as, um, as as a bonus for me. It It made me the person that I am. It allowed for me to know more about myself, that I won't take no for an answer. If I'm feeling symptoms, you know, and I was having some crazy symptoms, you know, as a track athlete, you feel like you know your body, you rely on your body, and then your body starts to let you down. And the medical profession wasn't giving me any answers, but I had to, you know, and I, I, I got to a very dark spot. You hear of athletes now going through a lot from the pandemic. I was in that same spot, you know, where you have those dark days. I had ended up covering up my blinds, my, covering up my mirrors. Um, I didn't want to look at myself because I had sore scaliness on my face. My hair was falling out. I had lost so much weight at my worst. I was, when I stopped looking at the scale, I was somewhere between 79 and 80 pounds. There's a problem. And I know that in a couple years, there's the Olympic Games coming around. There's no guarantee that you're going to make the Olympic Games. They come around every four years, well now five, but it, basically every four years. And there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to come back. So when I left in 88, there was no guarantee that I could come back in 92 and not knowing what was going on with me and to be sidelined for that two and a half years was, was traumatic for me because Graves' disease can be very debilitating. And all the things that I was going through, I had no answers. Nobody had answers for me. When people saw me, they thought I was either anorexic, on drugs, whatever, and I don't have any answers for them. So I, I think you know, like I said, I want to be a fan. And so when I sit in the, in, in the stands eventually and, you know, now watching on television, watching these athletes and realizing that, you know, everybody has challenges that they have to go through. And it's what do you do when you're faced with that? Thank goodness for me, knowing rapid heartbeat, the palpitation, the weight loss, hair loss, muscle weakness, that's not normal for me, that I became an advocate for my own health and I kept pursuing it to get myself diagnosed. Unfortunately, that diagnosis took two and a half years, three years by the time I got back on the track, but at least it happened and it allowed me to go back and to, you know, keep pursuing my goals and my dreams. I kept saying that I really just want to catch up to the old Gail Devers and I caught her and then I wanted to pass her. And um, just, you know, my Graves disease was for me traumatic, but also a, uh, a godsend when I got the answer. And if I had my life to live over, I'd ask for it again. And I guess I, I tell people that um, the, I guess the crazy part of all this is that I went through all of that. And then I've been having issues, but like, you know, with my eyes, eye pain, you know, my eyes have always been large. So the bulging, I didn't really pay too much attention to. Um, they've always been red. I have sensitivity to light. 
And I started thinking after my Graves' disease, after I came back from my diagnosis, came back to the Olympic Games, I started to think that all these other symptoms that I was having were just residual effects. So you just got to figure it out, Gil. You got to deal with it. And it was very recently. Now, this is 30 years later, very recently that I found out that all the symptoms that I'm having with my eyes is something else that I have that's related to my Graves' disease, but it's separate. It's called thyroid eye disease. And now... I had to see a specialist, a thyroid eye disease specialist, in order to get that, you know, under under control and get it treated. And so my my whole thing now for all athletes, because you hear athletes talking about everything from mental health to everything, we've got to be advocates for our own health. For me, I'm on a serious journey that anybody who has Graves' disease or you're having the symptoms of Graves' disease, like weight loss, you know, you're um, I, like I was really tired all the time. But yet I couldn't sleep. I had insomnia. So I'm telling people, if you're having those symptoms, you need to go in and get that taken care of. You may have Graves' disease. But if you already have Graves' disease, 50% of the people who have that, up to 50%, may develop what I have, which is thyroid eye disease. And you need to get that under control. So I appreciate you for allowing me to come on to even talk about that because people need to know that you don't have to live with certain certain circumstances. You have to, you know, be an advocate and get that under control. And these athletes, we saw them yesterday and in the past nine days deal with so many things. Like you talked about distance, you know, let's run talk about distance runners. Let's talk about the distance runners, what they had to endure, even with the heat and what that could bring to them. So they had to figure out, you know, what they needed to do to get themselves to accomplish the goals that they wanted to accomplish. So I don't want to kind of unpack there a little bit, but July Graves disease, Awareness Month, right? Like, it's good you're talking yeah. about this because it's kind of crazy. Like, I mean, you're one of the top athletes in the world. You had this thing for a couple of years and didn't know. And mm-hmm. uh, some of the stuff you said that reminded me, like, you'd see those specials on NBC or like when the profile on you on Olympics. And I remember they said, like, you know, your legs swelled up, your hair was falling out, you had to keep the shades down. And yeah, you lost all this weight. Remember saying, I just had this picture of this lady who's almost like you're 100 years old, some little old lady wilting away in your house and you can't go outside. And, <laughs> That's a good analogy. You, I like that. <laughs> yeah, you had to come back to be the, the fastest woman in the world. It's pretty crazy. But there are like symptoms people should look for, or, or yeah. didn't Barbara Bush have, have Graves' disease? Like a bunch yeah. of people. But yeah, what should people, is there stuff people can do to sort of, or what are the well, symptoms you, you they should be aware of? You look for the signs and symptoms. You know, for me, it was rapid heartbeat, like heart palpitations, um, weight loss, like I said, hair loss, my uh, muscle weakness, menstrual cycle issues. And, um, you know, those are the things that um, fatigue. I was constantly tired, but yet I had insomnia, so I couldn't sleep. So we're telling people that if you're having any of those symptoms, you need to go in and, and get that under control. Now, also, with Graves' disease, what, like I said, the crazy part of it, and I remember what brings to mind for me is I remember running a race in Monaco. I had already been diagnosed with my uh, grave disease. I would take my medication. I was coming back. I was doing well. And I had to run this race in Monaco. And I always complain, you know, to those who are around me about my eyes. Like my eyes never really close when they close. And people are like, oh, you look kind of creepy sleeping because your eyes don't close. I, and I know that because people are creepy because they're like, you know, I might fall asleep. And they're like, uh, she asleep. She's not asleep. And so the, the look of that, so we're, you know, rapid heartbeat, um, heart palpitations, weight loss, hair loss. For me, my nails um, started breaking. They were brittle. And so that was one of the signs that I'm like, oh, 
but basically, like what we're saying is that if you're having any of these symptoms, and it may not be you, it may be somebody that you know that you see these same signs and symptoms, and if you could help save their quality of life. But I'm also saying because it's been 30 years, you know, and I'm still having symptoms that I thought were because of my Graves' disease and I just have to deal with it because, hey, I'm still here. And it's not the case. It's something that's related to the Graves' disease, but it's totally separate because you also have to have the diagnosis by a TED, which is a thyroid eye disease specialist. And so I'm telling people, if you're having issues with your eyes, you, first of all, you need to focus on your eye health. And if you're having issues with your eyes, you know, some of the things that you were feeling during your Graves' disease, you need to see a TED specialist. And, you know, the website would be uh, focusonted.com because I didn't know. I myself did not know, and I thought that this is just my life. I've got to deal with it. But I, had I been able to get 30 years ago some information and somebody were to tell me that, no, this is probably related but separate, you need to go and see a TED specialist, I wouldn't have to go through what I'm going through now. And so I don't want anyone else to have to suffer. So I think alleviating that pain and suffering is, is through education. So for you, I thank you you know, for even asking about this. I always say, you know, I ran the relay, and now what we're doing is we're passing a relay baton, but it's full of knowledge, and it's going to help somebody else. And we want them to get to the finish line as a sprinter, which is quick, fast, and in a hurry, and not as it seems like I decided to do was take the distance and take my time. Yeah, you took the marathon route, or the ultra marathon I route. I did, but you know I, I ran a half marathon before the uh, pandemic, though. So no, I was about, to, people are like, I was about to ask you that because I was about to say, what's the longest you've run? And also, Wikipedia says you were an 800 meter runner in high school. So I'm curious about both those things. Okay, what, <laughs> I did. I started off um, in high school. I, I started running when I was 15. And that was because my brother made me do it. And so I ran cross country first just because I hadn't done anything other than school. And so I ran cross country. And then when track season came around, I was like, okay, I don't know what to do. I don't want to run the mile. So, okay, I'll run the 800. So I ran the 800. I ended up running like 211. And then um, each year somebody would suggest that I try a different event. So I went from the 800 on down, and then I got to the 100 and the hurdles. I'm like, oh, straight away. I don't have to go further than 105 meters. So I kind of stayed there. But um, I had that background. And so when um, right before the pandemic, like three months before, well, the, I knew the Olympic trials were going to be here in Atlanta in, in March. And so um, Rich Kanaf from Atlanta Track Club, so three months before, like uh, about three months before the trials, he asked, well, he asked before then, but I didn't answer him until about three months. He asked if I would do something, and I was like, do something like what? He said, well, what do you think about training? Uh, no, he said, what do you think about running like the half marathon? You know, we got the marathon coming up, uh, trials. And I was like, I'm thinking he wants me to support. Yeah, absolutely, I'll support, you know. He was like, no, I'm thinking, you know, you you run. I'm like, I said, like, you mean like go from like couch potato to like a person who's actually running and competing in this event? He's like, yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness. So I, I you know, I like challenges. It goes back to challenges of what you can or what you think you can do and what you actually can, can figure out to do. So I accepted that challenge. And I was coming off of an injury with, I have a big dog and he kind of ran into my leg. So I was coming off of a knee injury. So I started and I ran 
And, you know, they were saying, for your age, you know, if you can run 230, that would be good. I'm like, 230? You know, first of all, I had to get over the concept that it was 13.1 miles. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And uh, But it was cool just to go to practice and, and, you know, be out there with, you know, a team and try to figure this out. So I had fun doing that, and I ended up running 153. So uh, And I was actually mad because I didn't run it the way I thought I should. I was waiting because everybody kept talking about these heels, and so I kind of waited. And by the time I realized, I'm like, where's the heels? I, you know, because they're like, don't go out so fast. I could have, like, gone faster. So, um, but I checked that off my box. So, uh, half marathon is the furthest I've gone. 153 was my time. That's pretty good. I'm impressed. <laughs> and I still can also believe you started out running the 800. You're probably the only person in the history who started out running mid-distance and became Olympic 100-meter champion. He, he goes the other way. He's, yeah, people find out they're not fast. They just start running longer and longer. Um, yeah, how – so you're in Atlanta. Like, how active are you in, in with the sport these days? Um, I do a lot as far as, um, like, with I, – I mentor and or train, help, you know, like, I, actually a lot of football players and track track uh, athletes. Um, just wanting to help them, whatever whatever their goals are, help them accomplish their goals. Um you know, Atlanta Track Club puts on a lot of uh, meets here for everyone, you know, from the marathon to everything else. So I'm uh, an ambassador for them, so I do a lot with them, too. So it's um it's exciting. It's exciting just to get out there and, and watch these kids and older ones accomplish what they want to accomplish. And I know Rich Kanaw from, like, back when I lived in D.C., and I don't say, you know, I don't stay in touch with that much, but it seems like they're doing a really good job there, sort of expanding Atlanta Track Club and, and doing good things in the city of Atlanta. They are. They put on over 30 races a year, you know, before the pandemic. So, um, and a lot with the young kids, you know, grassroots programs. I do a lot with like the little kids, um, their kilometer kids program and everything. So it's um, just trying to make Atlanta like a city of, you know, people who want to stay fit and stay active. And so, like I said, challenges, anything, everything goes back to challenge for me. And I figure if you put a challenge toward me, I've already come through my Graves' disease, that part of it. I'm dealing with my thyroid eye disease. So anything else you put up to me, I, I'm, I'm up for it. Yeah, do you think the Graves' disease and sort of going through that gave you perspective in your career and helped your career, you know, be so long? I, I believe it did. Um, you know, going through my Graves' disease, one of the toughest things I, you know, as an athlete, you depend on your body and your feet. And, you know, mine was letting me down. And so to be able to come back from that, I just remember saying, you know, I'm going to run to the wheels fall off. And I don't know what the word no means. You can't tell me that I can't do something if I'm willing and I work hard and I believe that I can, I'm willing to accomplish that. And so I think going through my Graves' disease, Losing the two and a half, almost three years, because people always say, why did you run so long? You were like the grandmother of the sport. And I think it came from, you know, there were three years that I lost. You know, everybody has injuries that they have to deal with, but I had an illness that I didn't know if I'd ever come back from that. And so having lost that and losing sight of myself, and I think, you know, when I think about my Graves' disease, I think about all the things that I lost, you know, weight loss, hair loss, my nails were lost, my personality was lost, my identity was lost. I couldn't stand the way I looked. So all of that and then to come back. I mean, you talked about a person who would not look themselves in the mirror. I could not stand the way I looked. I, I you know, I was 
half the person that I was before. I had scaliness on my face. I had look what looked like a like if you have a sword, it turns into a scab. That scab falls off, and underneath you see blood or it's attached. On my face, I had that. That's not the look that I wanted to see. So coming back from all of that, getting that answer that, oh, my gosh, when you think you're crazy because everybody says, no, maybe you peaked too many times as an athlete. And then to finally, two and a half years later, be told that, you know what, you're not crazy. You know, I had given Bobby my resignation speech saying that I, I got to move on and do other things because obviously this is not what I thought I was supposed to do. Obviously, it's not what I'm supposed to. And him not accepting it, then getting that answer and saying what you have is a disease. And, you know, we're going to get you to the point where you take medication every day for the rest of your life in order to live. And so coming back from that, I was like, okay, you know what? I can do anything. Anything that I put my mind to it. And what gave me that was going through my grave disease, you know, which unfortunately, I guess I would say that's also 30 years later why I was still having issues with my eyes and stuff, thinking that that was a part of my grave disease and that I'm just happy to be here and I'm, I'll figure out how to deal with that. And that can be, you know, very debilitating. There are people who have thyroid eye disease and their identities are stolen. They can't drive, you know, they can't work because of the sensitivity. I mean, I still have issues when oncoming cars, like the lights of oncoming cars to me, and I just figured out, okay, I guess I have to deal with it, but you shouldn't have to. And so what my grave disease has taught me as an athlete and as a person is that, first of all, be an advocate for your own health. You know your body better than the doctor you may see once or twice a year, but also don't accept no. If you believe and you're willing to work for something, regardless of what they say, like you said, people say I'm a hurdler, and the irony of me being a hurdler is that if you look in the Olympic record books, I don't have any Olympic records or Olympic medals in the hurdles, but I have it in the in the hundreds. So it's also don't believe what other people say about you. It's what you believe, what you're willing to work for, how long you're willing to work for that, and accept any challenge and conquer it. When you feel like the walls are closing in on you and there's no way out, you have to reach deep inside yourself to find that inner strength, which I believe we all have. My Graves disease taught me that. My thyroid eye disease that I'm dealing with now has taught me that I ran relays. I was a sprinter. But I need to make sure that other people have the opportunity by giving them the information, short, short information. We don't want to go the long route of the distance. We want to make sure that they get this information so they can help themselves, help other people, because we all have one life to live and we deserve that quality of life. So I'm always thankful that I went through my Graves disease and that, like I said, I always wanted to be a teacher. Doing it my way, I would have a classroom of 25, 30 kids. Doing it the way it was supposed to be done and the way I did it, I have the world as my classroom, and I'm thankful to people like you for allowing me to speak to help save somebody else because you're doing the same thing. You've got a, a podcast. You've got, you know, a pen and paper that you can put at your, you know, typewriter, or not typewriter anymore, but a computer at your disposal that you can put information out there that's going to help somebody else. And so now we become all part of this relay that we're helping other people do what they need to do. So I thank you. And my grades oh. has taught me that I have to do it. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, you're talking about typewriters. I've talked to some, <laughs> you know, old time reporters. And they're like, yeah, we used to like type stuff up and fax it in. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine. Because now I can, <laughs> I, I can look up, <laughs> I, I can sound smart too with Google. Like I can look stuff up, you know, even right before this, 
I was checking because, you know, I don't know the sprints as well as I run, know the distance. And I'm like, oh, did Gail ever have the world record? And so I'm looking and then I see the world records. And when I saw the world records, right, it was a bunch of like Bulgarians and Russians. And right away, I'm like, oh, well, they were probably on drugs. And you said, oh, you know, I had Graves disease. People, I'm wilting away. Some people think maybe I'm on drugs. How big of a, I mean, it's still in the sport now, right? Like we got the Brianna McNeil thing. Like how big of a problem was that back then? What do you think of the issue now? Well, when you talk about, you know, in sports, um, there's always issues. Um, I think my philosophy has always been you don't have to run track and field. You know, you sign up to run it, you play by the rules, plain and simple. I, these are the things that I tell my kids. Always think about the consequences of your actions before you act, because if you do that, half the things you thought about doing, you probably wouldn't do. And so I think, you know, um, people talk about drugs and sports or whatever. I don't focus on any of that. I focus on me, to be honest. And I, I play by the rules. That was what I did, and that's what I still do. That's what I teach my kids to do. Anybody that I come in contact with, I tell them just to be you. All you can do is give it your 100%, and I say give it a little oomph that's going to take you over, and the rest of it you can't worry about. You can't worry about what you think other people are doing or what other people may be doing. Concentrate on you. I'm like that horse that has blinders on, and my whole goal is just to be the best me. I, I look at it that everybody wants to be successful. But what does it really mean to be successful? To me, it doesn't mean that I have to win every race. It doesn't mean that I have to own the company. It doesn't mean that I have to make the most money. It means that I have to be the best me. And if I can look myself in the mirror after every task that I do and I can say I did my best, I gave it my all, then I'm successful. And my example for that, I always tell people, was always at the Olympic Games 100-meter hurdles in 1992 where uh, I guess you'd say I fell over the hurdle. I always say that hurdle jumped up and got me. But anyway, I ended up on the ground. But when I look at that race, after that race, I say I did my, I did everything that I could. I was scratching and clawing and pawing to get to the finish line. And so I will take it to my grave that I'm successful in that race. And everything I believe happens for a reason. And so for me, had I won, in 92, coming back from my Graves disease and all that I had gone through, I caught up to Gail. I passed Gail. Had I won, I would have probably retired. But doing it that way and not getting it, I got half and didn't get the rest, that put me on a pursuit, on a journey to keep pushing, to set new goals for myself, to say that I want to come back. And in my wanting to come back, you know, talking to Wyoming Atias and her being my inspiration in 93 to say, you know what, I want my name in the record books next to yours. And so I put another sticky note out and started pursuing that I want to go back and see if I can do something that they say, as you, as you said earlier, is not my event. But the irony of it, that something that me and I actually started running 100 working on my uh, speed for the hurdle. And look where it got me. So I always tell people, you know what, if you're willing to put yourself out there and, and trust the process, you don't know where it's going to take you, but be willing to take that journey. The, the 92 Olympic race, it's crazy how it inspired you to keep going and stuff like that. And I feel like also you're, you're really well known for that race. Like it was so dramatic. The fact you kept going, I don't know, like sometimes, I mean, you had this huge 
failure is not the right word, but it was so dramatic that I don't no, know. Yeah, no, you might be it, more it, well known because of it, right? People kept they were yeah. like, "Oh man, I want her to do well next time." And I remember watching after that, I was like, "Oh man, she could she could be sailing along and still hit a hurdle." So like, you gotta, you know, it's, this is nerve wracking. Yeah, and and that's kind of how I look at life. I always tell people take life one hurdle at a time. You were in the moment, which is a hurdle you're going over, but don't focus on that. I focus on where I'm going next. And I, I, I don't look at the hurdle that I'm at. I look at the hurdle that I want to get to and then look at the finish line. And that's kind of how I deal with life. It's like, okay, I'm here in this moment and I'm taking it all in, but I know where I want to go and I have to keep striving to get to that finish line. I think that's great advice. Thanks for taking all the time to join us. Is anything else you want to add? No, just, uh, you know, like you said, we're giving information. It is Graves Disease Awareness Month, but also in addition to that, if you have it, if you have Graves Disease, you could be one of the 50% that will develop thyroid eye disease like I have. So I need you to pay attention to your eye health and then go on the website, www.focusonted.com, and make sure you can get your life back on track. And um for me, I, I thank you again for giving me that opportunity and go USA or, you know, I'm looking forward. Now, you said your distance. I watched some of the distance races, too, and I was impressed. Now, what do you consider distance, by the way? Let me ask you. What, I, I what, count the 800. 800 I count your event yeah. 800. So, I think Mo, she's a sensation. Oh, yeah. I think she's going to win oh. the gold medal. I mean, I, she's I got the best 400 time right now too in the U.S. as well, which is crazy. Yeah. Well, she just ran, what, what was she, did she run 156, right? Yep. I think she ran 156. And so, you know, and then, and, and Ozzy, I was proud of her for coming back, showing, you know, as a veteran, because she was in sixth place coming off that last 100 meters. And for her to just keep pushing, keep pushing, and to get third, to get on that team, and then she can go and reconfigure and figure out, you know, because she's got a 155. or, or So she, she can get back to where she needs to be. So watching that, I watched. Um, in the 1500 Hawker, that was awesome to watch him. I and mean, he just, just you know, Oregon guy, he, so he had to He, he was like a freight train. Yeah. In he, that race, or, or a bullet like a train, sprinter. I guess is a better word. Yeah. A sprinter. And then I was watching um, uh, the, the 5000, uh, watching, um, who was that, Slimo, Paul when they Slimo. were – yeah. yeah, they were having like some of the issues and stuff, and then he just like he's got a long side. He just kind of got out of the way and said, "Okay, you know what? You got to do what you got to do." And I was watching, you know, Matthew in um, in their race, and so in the fifteen hundred too, and you know, he's just so poised. So I, I'm a fan of not just sprinting and hurdling. I'm a fan of track and field. So I watch from everything from you know high jump, long jump, heptathlon, you know, the shot put, discus, and so I'm just excited that. We're having the game. You know, I, I, I look back at the challenges that these athletes had to deal with over the last couple of years, you know, not knowing if the games were going to go off and then just still being having to be prepared for that. And those are the challenges that we all face. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, it's going off and, you know, fans or no fans, I think the United States is going to go there and we're going to put on a great show and we're going to bring home some hardware. Yeah, you don't. You talking about a thing, Mo Cole Hawker and Paul Tulima just made everyone at Let's Run like go crazy. They're loving you right now. Uh, you're, you're a <laughs> true track and field fan because some people say, I "Oh know. yeah, I follow it all," and they don't. But you clearly do. 
I'm going to throw something out there. You're going to have to run a marathon, like the New York City Marathon. You know how they like follow the celebrities? That's going to be you. I'm just getting it out there. They can contact you. I'm sure they're listening. Gail Devers needs to do the marathon. I don't know about that one. I, I checked the other one off my bucket. If you know, I want to do like some 10 Ks and stuff. I, I would like to do that six mile because I think that's a good like distance for okay, me. Okay, then they should do like a uh, sprinting legends relay at the New York City Marathon. Like you guys each run 10K and then with someone else run like two okay, miles. Okay, now so. that I'd like. Okay. You know what? I like that one. You can make that one happen. That one is, is interesting to me. The whole marathon by myself, yeah, not so much. <laughs> Okay, yeah, everybody can run like one borough of New York or something and for a different charity and that sort of thing. So okay. they need to contact you. Yeah, there you go. I'm doing mine for Graves' disease and thyroid eye disease, so we gotta keep it going. <laughs> so we have what what's your what what event are you most looking forward to at the Olympics? All of them. <laughs> I mean I I've already got it set so that I know I mean I've got my paper, I know what times the events go off and what time, you know, because it's different time of, of uh, you know, daytime, nighttime for us versus over in Tokyo. I've got it all on my paper, set by my computer so that I can uh, set my alarm so I can get up and watch everything. Plus, I like other sports, too. You know, I like, I watch all gymnastics. I watch the Paralympic trials. So I, I'm just, I'm a fan. And I said it when I ran. I used to say, oh, when I'm 60 years old, I want to be able to sit in the stands and watch great competition. And I actually don't want, I, I'm still not sitting in the stands. I'm actually still kind of doing some stuff, staying active, because I believe in staying active, just, you know, keeping my, myself fit. So I, I don't have a favorite. I just like what I like. And I like being there and watching great competition. Yep. Well, we, we got a lot of that this last week and I'm looking forward to the Olympics. So thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the information that you're allowing me to put out there. Okay. Thanks. All right, podcast listeners, I've told you about the virtual race you can run and beat yours truly. The second annual Go for the Red, Red Cross virtual 5K. It's not just a 5K. It could be a bike race. You can do whatever you want. Walk, run, whatever. Good cause. August 7th, got to sign up. But right now, we're gonna be, you're going to be learning about what you're going to be supporting if you do do this race. It's going to be the Red Cross. I think most people are like me. They have a good feeling about the Red Cross. I mean, it's very positive. No one hears Red Cross and thinks a negative thing. But I think a lot of people don't know what the Red Cross really does. And I don't really know. And my wife's on the local board. So we're joined now by James Francavilla. Is that right, James? You got it. I'm famous for butchering people's names, but I think I did a pretty good job there. He's the chief development officer for the American Red Cross National Capital and Greater Chesapeake Region. He works with my wife on the board and is going to help tell us about the Red Cross. James, if I, if someone's, when you tell people you work for the Red Cross, you know, they must ask, what, what do you guys do? When I say, what does the Red Cross do? What's your, how do you, how do you answer that? Yeah, well, you know, it is uh, not a easy, quick answer because the Red Cross does so many things that even as an employee, I've been with the Red Cross uh, just about eight years, I'm still learning. Oh, we did that or we were involved in that. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the Red Cross, Robert, they think of two things. They think of blood and floods, and that's what they think of. And uh, we do a lot more than that. In fact, uh, the majority of the work that the Red Cross does uh, locally and around the country is respond to residential house fires. 
Um, so uh, we do a lot of work preparing um, groups um, to know what to do when there is a house fire. We will install for free smoke alarms and smoke detectors and then work with individuals on an escape plan. But a lot of the work that we do, in addition to the preparedness for that, is uh, we are uh, typically the only organization that will get a phone call from a uh, emergency management um, individual, a first responder, saying, hey, there's a fire, it's two o'clock in the morning, there's seven people that are displaced, they're sitting out on the curb, they have nowhere to go. And the Red Cross goes there uh, with our volunteers, and we will make sure they have a place to stay that night. We will make sure they have food, they have clothing. Is there medication that's needed? Um, you know, before insurance kicks in and before anybody else kicks in, we will provide them a prepaid debit card to make sure they have a place to stay, to make sure that they have enough food and water and clothing to get them through uh, what is arguably going to be uh, the worst night of their life. You know, we do that, of course, then we do respond to floods and we do collect blood. Um, but a lot of things that we do is not always in the news. We're there on site every day, several times a day in local communities to make sure people are okay when there is a devastating house fire. Well, that's great because, you know, I think people, <laughs> I was thinking about it, you know, like I always think of Red Cross and hurricanes, but I'm like, what are the odds the average person is hit by a hurricane? But I know you guys do so, so much more than that. And I've actually installed a bunch of bunch of in your annual smoke detector uh installation thing every yeah. every summer my wife and i've done that that's been a lot of fun um are, are there red cross i mean I, I was actually doing a little bit of wikipedia research and the the winner of the first nobel peace prize was the founder of the red cross over and i think in switzerland but is there a red cross pretty much in all 50 states every community do they have a local red cross yeah uh there's a red cross in basically every uh country in the world um, don't quote me on the number across the country, across the world, but it is somewhere in the neighborhood of 140, 150 Red Cross, national Red Cross organizations in different countries. Uh, sometimes they're called Red Crescent because sometimes a cross has a religious connotation that uh, a, a country may not want. Um, so uh, in addition to the national organization, I'm sorry, the international organizations, the American Red Cross is one nonprofit organization. For those who know about this stuff, there's one tax ID. We are one organization, but we have presence in every community out there in the country. So the work that we do uh, is implemented at the local level, but we have national support um, as well. So when somebody makes a decision to donate to the Red Cross, and a lot of times we get questions, Red Cross, a behemoth organization, there's so many organizations or so many chapters around the country, there's the International Red Cross. When I make a donation onto, a, onto your website, um, how do I know it's going to stay locally? How do I know it's going to stay right there in the community? And we take donor intent very, very seriously. It's critically important. So when somebody makes a donation, for example, um, unless they state otherwise, that donation is going to stay in their local community. And that is based on the zip code of their home address. You make a donation online and you give a credit card. It's the zip code of the mailing address for that credit card. And that money is going to stay local. If you say you want it to go to a national disaster, then we will use that money for a national disaster. Uh, a lot of times folks will say, I want it to go where it's needed the most. And then we have the, the uh, best of all worlds because then we truly can use it for a major hurricane or we can truly use it for local activity. And then when there's huge disasters that happen, and unfortunately they happen more and more, 
folks can also designate their dollars to say, I want it to go directly to, you know, the relief efforts that are going on for, by some named storm or some named disaster. Yeah, well, well, that's great. And if they don't have money, they can always just donate blood. So <laughs> if they don't have money, you can donate blood. Um, the other thing and the thing that's truly amazing about the Red Cross is 90% of the work that the Red Cross does is actually done through volunteers. So yeah, financial donations. Of course, we need financial donations to do what it to do what it is we need to do. Not only in a response and recovery, but preparedness to hopefully uh, mitigate or lessen the impact of a disaster. Uh, folks can donate blood, of course, uh, but ninety percent of the work that we do is through volunteers. The volunteers are the ones, and I'm so humbled by this, Robert. I'm just so humbled. You know, you think of people volunteering at an organization, not to downplay any other volunteer in any other organization, but you might think of them as ladling soup out, right? Or doing some clerical work, um, you know, in an organization. Our volunteers are the ones who are out there at two o'clock in the morning, responding to folks who have no place to go. When there is a hurricane and we have opened up shelters and an old gymnasium is now converted to shelters, by and large, those are volunteers that are doing that. When we are driving around what we call our emergency response vehicles, and you may see that on the news and they're handing out food um, and, 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 and things like that, those are typically volunteers. We train the volunteers, we give them access, uh, we help manage them, but a lot of the work is done by volunteers. So uh, financial donations, blood and volunteers. Without any of those three things, we would not be able to do uh, what we do at all. We, we just would not be. We'd, we'd be um, unable to, to complete and to fulfill the mission of the American Red Cross. That's amazing. So if someone does want to volunteer, what's the best way to, to get in touch with their local Red Cross? Yeah, you just uh, go uh, for anything. Blood donation, volunteering, um, uh, uh, financial donation, redcross.org. Just go on there. Uh, there is information uh, specifically for volunteers once you're on that site, and you can take a look at all the different volunteer opportunities uh, that we have. Some of them are, you know, not as um, exciting if you consider being on a disaster exciting. Some of them are, you know, uh, more clerical types of things to help us behind the scenes. Uh, so there's a lot of different skill sets we look for for folks. And there are a lot of folks out there that have a skill set and they're trying to match what they can do with the Red Cross. Uh, pretty much can guarantee that uh, there will be a match. Uh, we take the training of volunteers very seriously. Uh, and uh, we, we just love our volunteers. I mean, they're, they're, you come into a Red Cross office, you would not know the difference between who a volunteer is and who a paid staff member is, because in many instances, we're all doing the same work. So redcross.org. Um, and if you're interested in, again, learning more about this, uh, Go for the Red, which is on August 7th, separate re website for that. It's actually goforthered.org. And all the proceeds from that event is going to stay locally uh, to help us uh, prepare and respond to local disasters within the central Maryland and national capital area. Well, great. Hopefully people will sign up for the Go for the Red and they can beat me up, beat my time. I think a lot of people are excited to be doing it. You were a former potential Olympic runner, weren't you? Not, so not really, but... A lot uh, closer to it than I was. I mean, Well, right. My wife thinks I was, so I, I fooled her in that, but... Um, <laughs> Thanks. And she doesn't listen to this podcast, so she won't hear it. She won't know what you're saying anyway, right? Right, right. But um, thanks for your time, James. And, and, and the information's been really, um, you know, 
great for people to learn. And I, what you said about the volunteers really struck me because I actually learned when, I, when I've done the smoke detector stuff, it's helped me become more handy around the house because yeah. I can drill and do, do a little bit more stuff. So hopefully people sign up or at least volunteer or to give some blood because it, it's such a, a worthy cause. And Yeah, absolutely, Robert. And again, thank you so much for your support. Thank you to your wife. Uh, we are, we would not be able to do anything, like I said, without our, without our volunteers. So thanks for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Sure. No problem.